Hello and welcome to the 250, a POUS, a podcast of unusual size, uh, talking about the IMDb's top 250 <laughs> movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Um, I'm very well. Um, thank you. I, I, inconceivable, Darren. How, 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 how are you doing? I, I, you keep using that word, Andrew. I, I'm not sure it means what you think it does. Um, yes, listeners, probably guess from the fact that we, the two lines that we've quoted the movie that we're covering today, on top of the fact that it's in the feed with the title of the movie we're covering today, we are talking about the 1987 movie, The Princess Bride, directed by Rob Rayner. And joining us for this discussion, prompting this discussion, a fantastic guest from the journal.ie, from the Explainer podcast, the wonderful Aoife Barry. How are you, Aoife? I'm great. I like can't remember any good quotes I could be saying for the Princess Bride right now. <laughs> but I really loved that little duo there between the two pieces. So. Uh, so good. I'm very good. Thanks. Particularly good because I get to talk about this film. So thank you for having me on. No, our, our pleasure. I mean, I we were kind of like sorting out the list of stuff we wanted to do for the year. And I kind of like went down through a list of guests that we haven't had on in like an inconceivable amount of time. Um, literally inconceivable. Literally inconceivable. I went through the list. It turned out we hadn't had you on since before the pandemic. So like 20 years, roughly, I think. About I 20 think so. Years. 21, 22. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Easily like. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had you on talking about Little Women. We had you on talking about like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So I reached out and I asked like, so Aoife, Here's a list of all the movies that we have yet to cover on the top 250, the bottom 100. Pick one, anyone. What would you like to talk about? And you got back pretty quickly, as I recall, going, it's The Princess Bride. I want to talk about The Princess Bride. Yeah. Why? Why was it The Princess Bride? Oh, you know, I suppose like you have, we all have films that we watched multiple times when we were kids that like mean a huge amount to us. And like when I was a kid, we only had a handful of films that we watched loads of times. There's like four of us. So I'm sure my parents were a bit distracted. We didn't have this like loads of VHSs, but we did love watching films. But this one and Look Who's Talking, which is really not a suitable film for kids. <laughs> were, and Roger Dangerfield, uh, Rover Dangerfield. They were three of the films that we watched. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I had an eclectic uh, cultural childhood, clearly. Um, but we watched The Princess Bride all the time. In my memory anyway. And I've watched it so much. And it's one that myself, my siblings, like who would have varying interests in kind of in the films that I'd be interested in. Absolutely love. You could quote it to death no matter how many times I watch it. I just there's something out of it. I act like a total idiot watching it because I like quote the lines and stuff, which is probably really bad for the people watching it with me. And I just think there's so much going on every time I watch it. I get something new out of it. And if you haven't watched it, it's just such a treat on so many levels so when I saw that name on the list I thought we have to talk about it because I haven't rabbited on about it to anybody in a long time so now you get to suffer through my many thoughts on The Princess Bride. Fantastic and like you, you mentioned watching it as, as a child and like not to date yourself or, or the podcast do you remember like how how you came to it like was it on VHS did you see it in cinemas was it like from a from a parent how did how did The Princess Bride get to you because this is kind of an interesting thing I think yeah. Carrie Elways has talked about like where the movie kind of became an overnight sensation over 10 years so how did it come to you yeah I know I mean I wish I could say well as I'm only 21 you know we watched it on like YouTube or iTunes or whatever but no we got it on VHS um on tape I actually don't know I'm presuming that my parents must have heard that it was good and rented it and then bought it because we had it at home or else maybe we sneakily recorded it off someone even though pirating videos is a crime um, and as we know from the ads on down videos you would be very badly punished for it um, so you wouldn't download a bear 
You wouldn't uh, download a bear? Would you pirate Princess Bride? Yes, turns out many people would. You would dread um, pirate the Princess Bride. Exactly. I think, Actually, I think yeah, for, dread pirate Roberts. Nice little... Uh, we went on the Silk Road <laughs> back in the day in Douglas and uh, and got a video that way. Sorry, Andrew, you were going to say something there. No, I was going to say Fred Fred Savage would download da bears because he's uh sorry he's a chicago bears he fan. is a chicago he, bears fan he, that is one of his few defining traits he has a he has a poster of um the fridge but he's playing a baseball um game i, I suppose he likes both he, he he likes all the chicago teams no mention of the bulls here Listen, I, I, I'm the wrong person to talk to about many sports. I, I, I love the idea that what we're going to be talking about when we talk about the Princess Bride is notable absences. I mean, the absence of the father, the absence of the Chicago Bulls. It's all one and the same. It's well, a big yeah. void that reveals so much about the movie. The movie is in many ways a movie about omission, I think. But anyway, sorry. 100%. He does care mostly about sports. And I think that, like, at the beginning. And I, I think that yeah. relates to how, like, there's no... Uh, dad around and that that's kind of like the big uh, sorry Absolutely. actually we're getting ahead we of are ourselves. getting a bit getting very ahead deep of there yeah, already yeah. very early on <laughs> um, it does it, relate it, though right it, 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 it does I th- I, yeah I have several pages on this which we will get to at some point <laughs> um, because of course I do um, but Andrew what about yourself so do you remember the first time you saw The Princess Bride uh, is this a movie I'm assuming this is a movie that you saw before we watched it for this podcast if only because you replied to the suggestion we were covering it with a quote from the movie in question but do you remember the first time that you saw the princess bride i i think it was with a um i think it was uh, um a babysitter as in like um i think it was one of those houses that i went to after school that they had this that, that was actually the source of a lot of movies i think I, I, I oh think you mentioned this before because yeah your parents saw like top gun um uh, like uh, what should we call it um, Lethal Weapon oh wow um, and I think this is the, one of them the summer of 86 and the summer of 87 were huge for you in like 93 like that's what I'm <laughs> yeah. gathering here by the time they it reach VHS around, it's like it was around yeah. 94 I think and and I guess I'm guessing that they had the Princess Bride because um, they must have thought that Carrie Elwes was a hunk because they, they? they fancied uh, exactly. I've, they, they they definitely had a thing for like Tom Cruise and for Mel Gibson. Mm. Um, so they, 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 I, I, I imagine maybe maybe this was this was in there for similar reasons. And I was just like exclusively watching movies with hunks in them. And who could have called in 1987 that Carrie Elways would be the least problematic crush of the late 80s? It turns out. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, although I didn't I didn't Google Carrie Carrie problematic or cancelled at all in advance this conversation, so I'm taking that taking from it that he's still not cancelled in any shape or form, hopefully. There is one member of the core cast who is, and it's gonna be a surprise when we get to it, um, I suspect. All okay. Right. Oh no, really? Oh the, yeah. the, the, uh... Yeah, I feel like I feel like that's... this is a we, this is not something that we should be making a game of, but I guess we kind of have. So okay. tune in after the spoiler zone to find <laughs> out which we, member of the we're going to play the... the game, though, right? <laughs> we are. So, <laughs> yeah, make, make it don't don't just reveal it. 
<laughs> okay. 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 All right. But um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the development of the Princess Bride. Just it, its history, because this is uh, one that's going to be quite easy to talk about in terms of production history. Andrew sighs relieved. This is a movie that had a very easy production by all accounts. Famously, in 2015, when Carrie Elways was writing his basic account or memoirs of making the movie As You Wish, which is very worth reading, Elways did interviews where he was like, "When the publisher approached me to like ask me to write a memoir about the making of the movie, I was like." I don't actually remember anything about it because it seemed like it was just a nice experience. And he had to get Norman Lear to send him the call sheets for every day of shooting to remind him of what he actually did on the movie because it was such like a carefree, trouble-free existence. Um, he had a ghostwriter too, didn't he? They, 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 he did indeed. They, yeah, it's oh. kind of with, uh, with, what's his name, Joe something. He writes a lot of kind of sports biographies and things. Um and military stuff. There's there's another connection there. I like I like we have a theme threading through the episode already. Sports. Um, <laughs> a lot of people great. like are going to be like, why was Eva on an episode talking about anything related to sports? But it's here like, we go. Continue. Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's it's got like it's got this podcast has absolutely everything in it, including <laughs> sports. Does it have sports? It has lots of sports. Um, but obviously, The Princess Bride begins as a book written by William Goldman. William Goldman is a writer, uh, novelist, and screenwriter. And uh, like before he wrote The Princess Bride or before he, like obviously this happened he'd done like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid he'd written a screenplay for All the President's Men usually influential figure he's famously the Hollywood writer who delivered the line nobody knows anything one of the great truisms about Hollywood one of the great cynics about Hollywood as well and again Rob Reiner when he was working on the movie said that like he, the moment that he knew it was working was when William Goldman who hates absolutely everything about Hollywood like passed him in the corridor and said it's going pretty well isn't it and Rainer was like, I think it is. And it's like, that was the moment that I knew the movie was working. Um, but Goldman apparently was like pushed by his uh, two daughters to write a story. Um, and he asked them, what story would they like to hear? One of them said she'd like a story about a princess. Another one said she'd like a story about a bride. And therefore, the princess bride was born. As you might suggest, or as anybody who's watched the movie probably suspects, the movie is very, the novel has a very, very, very heavy metafictional aspect to it. So the book that was eventually published by William Goldman is actually titled The Princess Bride, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts Version, abridged by William Goldman, who is the author of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And the metafictional concept is that William Goldman had always loved this book as a child. His father had read it to him uh, as a child, and he was going to read it to his fictional son, except he then discovered that the book was horribly boring, and so decided to write his own version in which he would edit it as he goes along. And you have this metafictional narrative in which William Goldman inserts himself into the story, presenting himself as something of a cad and a terrible parent, um, and basically like comments upon the fantasy as it goes. Um, when the book was published, the rights were immediately snapped up by 20th Century Fox, who thought that they could make a movie of this. Uh, however, the film kind of struggled to find an audience among Hollywood executives. It struggled to find a way to make it to screen. Directors like Francis Truffaut, Norma Jewison, John Borman, and even Robert Redford, who wanted to play the character of Wesley, the farm boy in the story, all struggled to bring it to screen. At one point, Goldman remarked that, like, bringing up the Princess Bride in a meeting in Hollywood would get, like, a sigh and a rolled eye from a studio executive saying, oh, no, not that story again. Um, what eventually happened is that it got through to Rob Reiner. And Rob Reiner was in the middle of, like, one of the great cinematic hot streaks uh, in terms of cinema. Like, if you look at, like, Rob Reiner's first 
nine movies, arguably eight of them are Stone Cold classics. And in fact, of those nine, several of them have featured on the IMDb 250. So Andrew likes to play games on this podcast. Let's play a game. I want to play a game. Sorry, a little bit of a Carrie Elway's joke there. It kills in the right circles. Yes, that was a Saul reference. Rob Reiner has, over the course of the IMDb 250, had a total of six movies on the list. There is currently one movie on the list, and spoiler, it is not The Princess Bride, which dropped out since we actually, since Aoife said that she'd like to cover it. So, gonna throw it out to Aoife and Andrew, if you guys feel the urge. Aoife, do you want to go first or second? Final Tap? What it, what, Spinal Tap is yes, Spinal Tap was on the list, so that's, that's a bing, Stand correct. Stand by me. So, that is the one that is currently on the list, so yes, that's another bing there. So Aoife, it goes to when you. When I met Sally? Bing, that was also on the list. So yes, that's three of the six. Andrew. I'm going to struggle to name another Rob Reiner movie. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like I... Uh... I feel like I know Andrew. them and I'm going to kick myself when I when I when I when I hear what they are because um You want the list, Andrew. You can't <laughs> handle the list. <laughs> Clearly I don't think um, he did a, 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 a few good men. Um, he did. That's four. Really? <laughs> um <laughs> yes. Now Eva, I did give Andrew a fairly massive hint there. So if you want one you can go, but you he can go for five. Good men, so really? <laughs> Andrew is like I don't believe that. That's not, that doesn't fit. That's not, yeah. No, that like that, and again that that these are in his first nine movies. So those are like four of his first nine movies. So and obviously there's one that you know of the six somebody should probably mention. Is him? Yes and no. Uh, yes, it was Rob Reiner. Unfortunately, it has somehow never been on the 250. So assuming that we're counting The Princess Bride, it is all to play for. It is to Andrew, the final movie of Rob Reiner's that has made the 250. And this is a tough one. Um, the, um, I'm, I'm going to, um, I don't really know. I'm so sorry. Any Rob, well, this is great because this is the impossible one. This is the, this is his ninth movie. Um, okay, so so After fingers on buzzers, Aoife and Andrew. It, I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess. Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just guessing that because of um, Harry Met Sally. Uh, and, yeah. Oh god. And spoiler: it is not North. It is also not North. It's the movie he made directly after North. I liked the North, movie, by the way. I know you didn't, but I think that's because you you read that like um, I have no heart. You read that Ebert in, review. You, you read the review that like. Um, yeah, I hate Ebert. it. I hate this movie. I hate this movie <laughs> and its smug little face. Um, but yes. Oh, okay. So it was not North. It was the movie he made after North. Oh, All right. So fingers fingers on buzzers. Aoife and Andrew. A couple of hints coming up here. Okay. He, he was working with the writer of A Few Good Men. It was a related to another project that the writer of A Few Good Men would go on to work on for an extended period of time. Perhaps that writer's defining work at least in terms of american pop culture some might even say it was a bit of a prototype for it perhaps um starring michael douglas the name of the movie is the job that michael douglas has in the movie president american president yes that is it exactly the american president the 1990 
I'm like, what's a big job you'd make a film about? <laughs> Probably the American president. <laughs> job I think Michael Douglas could do in an Aaron Sorkin. The sleazy businessman. <laughs> I do not know that movie. Is is that the romantic comedy? Yes. Yes, it is. It's the one that inspired Sorkin's West Wing. Yeah. Is it Annette Benning? I remember that, yeah. Yeah. It's the one that inspired the West Wing. It's the one where like Sorkin was like, what if I did this every week for like four years and then got like arrested for cocaine use and got like quietly shunted off my own show? Um, so yeah, yeah. So those those are the kind of the six there that he did. But on Arrested t- for cocaine use? Um, was he arrested possession with cocaine? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's some state in America where if you look at cocaine, you'll get arrested. <laughs> okay, well, I will edit that out. I will... I will edit that out if it turns out not to be the case. He got um, arrested for doing cocaine wrong. Um, <laughs> or, um, um, he lost yeah, his yeah, job so like, because like you... of cocaine. I suppose that does happen. It's probably like... Um, There's some sort of absurd statistic where like Sorkin wrote 98 of the first 100 episodes of The West Wing. Like... There was a point where I think the studio, like the the like production, the development studio were like, why do we even pay a writer's room? Like, what is the purpose of a writer's room on this show if Sorkin is just going to write every script himself? He's definitely someone you who probably would not trust other people to touch his stuff. Do you know what I mean? He's like... Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, there are hard... Like, the, there's, there's stuff that comes... Like, the newsroom writer's room has a similar kind of vibe where they're like, we don't even know why we're here. Like, we don't even know what our function is. Like, he, he says stuff to us and we suggest things to him. And then he shakes his head and just does what he said he was going to do well, anyway. I, I think um, a lot of writers' rooms are like that, aren't they? Like, um, obviously, it doesn't take the same craft. But um, I, I saw a little bit of, of the South Park writers' room. Oh, and yeah. Not only is it not, is it, is it um, kind of not the room, but it's not really... Um, uh, the two of them either it's it seems to mostly be a, i i is is it trey parker or matt stone which which whichever is the kind of uh, uh better known for anyway sorry tangent i beg your pardon just a lot <laughs> of upon a tangent yeah a lot of uh writers rooms seem to just be kind of um uh, a fairly minor kind of participation from the other people well, I mean and there are other ones that are more cl- they're there to laugh at the jokes <laughs> yeah it's to get an audience to play off an audience yeah. it's like it's like a rehearsal space for the head writer well I mean to be fair there are lots of writers rooms that have historically been more inclusive and more welcoming the X-Files is a great one where Carter would just like literally like do film school for like Vince Gilligan Howard Gordon uh, James Wong uh, Glenn Morgan all those sorts of people um, but like I mean obviously I think like the Star Trek writers rooms depending on who you ask like the Deep Space Nine writers room and the Next Generation writers room were apparently like really great places to be on television the Voyager writers room and the Enterprise writers rooms were apparently less uh, conducive places to be apparently um, but again it, it just it depends speaking on speaking of Wallace Shawn yes nice segue to the get us back ne- on the Grand Nagus himself it is indeed um, and again like I like that Reiner has described the Princess Bride as the most Jewish fairy tale ever the made sex appeal yeah yeah. well I mean like that's the thing they they wondered like should they change the line Sicilian like was Wallace Shawn at all convincing as a Sicilian that was a big question that they asked <laughs> um, but yeah it's just kind of interesting that like so this movie kind of works its way through Hollywood the Princess Bride works its way through Hollywood and you have all these directors who couldn't get it done and then you have like Rob Reiner. And what happens with Reiner is that Norman Lear um, has basically like Norman Lear works with Reiner on All in the Family. And obviously Rob Reiner's father is Carl Reiner, who's like one of the great American kind of sitcom writers, one of the great American directors and stuff like that. And again, he comes from this dynasty where he's like known Lear since he was a nine year old kid. 
And Reiner knows Goldman through his father. Apparently, like, they had worked together. They'd met um, while Goldman was working on a book called The Season, which was about the famous Broadway season of 67 to 68. Um, And basically, the two of them kind of got connected and got talking. And Carl gave the book to Rob and said, you should read this book. And Rob was like, this is the one of the best books I've ever written. I would love to adapt it. In fact, he was actually in the process of adapting Stand By Me when he was like, yeah, no, my next movie should be The Princess Bride. And like, it's worth noting, these movies are all on top of one another. This is Spinal Tap is 1984. The Sure Thing is 1985. Stand By Me is 1986. The Princess Bride is 1987. When Harry Met Sally is 1989. Misery is 1990. And A Few Good Men is 1992. These are movies like are all on top of one another. Reiner is on like one of the hottest streaks. And the reason that is, is because like Norman Lear is saying, do what you want to do and I will back you financially. I will support you financially. And apparently he's the one who managed to get Reiner the rights to make The Princess Bride, to negotiate, to let the studios, let Reiner make this movie. Reiner brings Goldman on board. Goldman writes his own script based on obviously his own book. And as I said, the the production is apparently a dream. There are only a handful of minor issues, which are perhaps related to only one member of the cast that we will come to uh, at some point later on in the, in the podcast discussion. Well, I think I I think I I think I know what my guess is going to be. By the way, okay, all right, all right, all right. Well, we'll wait until we get into the. I haven't I haven't googled it, but I yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have an inkling based on based on an actor's reputation. Mm. All right, all right, all right. So. With that in mind, then, we're going to jump into the spoiler zone in a second, but three questions to get us started. So, Aoife, do you think The Princess Bride belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Well, it won't be a spoiler, you know, if anybody's heard me talking at the top of the podcast to say, yes, I do believe so. Um, for loads of different reasons, I think because it's like, it's it's an amazing adaptation of a novel in the sense that, it like that reputation has that you talked about there where, where nobody thought it was... It, they, that it was possible to do an adaptation of it and so it went through so many directors hands before it actually ended up in Reiner's hands and also because it's such a special film to a lot of people and it initially didn't do brilliantly at the box office but because of the VHS boom did really well and kind of got into people's homes I, have, I think it has all those reasons but it's also just such a tight story like they fit so much stuff into such a short period of time brilliant storytelling such great acting from actors that you would not expect to see in a load of the roles that they're in, which is great. So it breaks all of these rules, I think. And it's a, like, you know, it's a story within a story. So all the kind of metafiction elements of it as well are, are great. And it's just so entertaining and endlessly quotable. So for all those reasons, I will say yes. And like, like just, just to put that in context in terms of like lack of workability for the movie, like this, we talked this about this a little bit. We talked about like Lord of the Rings at Christmas and how like when Peter Jackson did the Lord of the Rings, American cinema was like, American audiences don't like fantasy. They don't like fantasy movies. They just don't get it. It doesn't work for them. And like, if you look at, say, The Princess Bride coming out in 1987, the the fantasy genre is arguably like at its lowest ebb in American cinema, where you've had this string of huge bombs, where like off the wake of the success of Star Wars, arguably off the wake of things like The NeverEnding Story uh, and like Time Bandits, which is only profitable because it cost nothing to make. Studios are like, okay, let's let's pump a bunch of money into these fantasy adaptations and let's see if we can convince people to do them. And so in quick succession, you have The Dark Crystal in 1982, you have Dune in 1984, you have Legend and you have The Black Cauldron in 1985. You have Labyrinth and the Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 1986. You have Willow in 1988. And all of these movies, most of them bomb, 
And the few that manage to like eke their way to profitability do so very slowly and very gradually and often against the weight of like critical opinion against them. Where like, you know, some of them have been rehabilitated because the kids who watch them have grown up and kind of come of age and been like, oh, well, we love those. We always love Dune. We always love the Dark Crystal. But like, it's an uphill battle and on audiences. That would definitely be the case with Labyrinth, wouldn't it? Or was that a success at the time? No. I, I, no. I know that it has yeah, a big cult following. Stuff, but... Yeah, I don't know. Like, how was it thought of at the time? It was not well received at the time and it was not a financially successful movie. It was one of the movies where, like, again, it was the, the Henson Henson, Henson family trying to move beyond the Muppets and not really succeeding at that, unfortunately. Um, it's interesting. I've, I've found um, sometimes talking to people in their 40s that they don't like Bowie because of really? all those movies. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah that that they were like oh yeah they, they kind of that that they just kind of associate them with like crap movies in the 80s um, i mean to be fair like which is maybe unfair yeah, just slightly to the man himself not to turn this into a bowie podcast but like I'm, i am a big bowie fan and i love that like the bowie estate has been packaging like bowie's discography like covering everything everything he farted into a microphone has like been re-released and repackaged by the Bowie estate like chronologically so they have like uh, and like wonderful collections I wholeheartedly recommend them things like say five years which covers like 68 to 73 you have things like a new career in a new town which I think is like 77 through to 82 uh, and all this sort of stuff and what's really interesting is that like they the box sets have like a four year gap in them where like one box set which i believe is like is it loving the alien ends in like 1988 and the next one which is brilliant adventure begins in 1992 and it's just like bowie would just did nothing in the four years between 1988 and 1990 nothing to see here pay no attention kids there never was a tin machine um but yeah like like bowie i think like there there is a perception even among the bowie estate that like during the 80s they were not his creative peak, as it were. Um, but he wrote Magic Dance, which is on the Labyrinth soundtrack, which is a Stone Cold Banger. I'm sorry. Justice for Magic I, Dance. I love that song. I mean, it. it I, I'm on board with that. Um, but yeah, like, so... It, exactly. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. Who do? You do. Remind me of the babe. <laughs> the babe with what babe? <laughs> the babe with the power. Um, sorry. What power? <laughs> you sent me um, as well, like, other songs from that album. You know, like, like, yes, I did. Like, you know, the way Prince did, like, Bat Dance and all uh, <laughs> <laughs> like... I love the idea that Labyrinth is like Bowie's Bat Dance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, so like that's the state that the fantasy genre was. And there was a sense that like American audiences didn't want to go to see these movies. So it's kind of remarkable that like The Princess Bride comes out at its like universally beloved. Like, I was texting with my family about this and they were like my younger sister who like I think and again not not to insult my younger sister on the podcast or make insinuations about her, her character or movie taste we've talked about before where to her at one stage she was like you'd be very proud of me I watched a classic movie I watched an old movie and I'm like fantastic what was it Scream from 1996 Aww. um and I was like, I feel so old. I have never felt older than when my sister described Scream as an old movie. That's um, like a new film in a way to me. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what exactly. Like, how, how do they have five of them now? It only came out like 10 years ago. It's like new. Right? 90s still. Modern uh, horror. <laughs> 90s still feel shiny. Kind of. It but really does. They, yeah. Like, I think because of the TV and movies that we watch. But when we see like photos of our parents in the 90s, it's like, <laughs> like not so shiny. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's very retro. But, um yeah but like yeah so, but the princess old. bride like 
my sister loves the Princess Bride. My younger brother loves it. Everybody loves the Princess Bride, which is, is quite remarkable, I think. And kind of like, and like to the point where like when I was doing research for this, I discovered in like two, 2020, the New York Times published an article from somebody who hated the Princess Bride. Like it was news. Shocker. Like it was like, we found him. We found the person, published the article. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's remarkable how loved this movie is kind of across generations. But Andrew... What about yourself? Do you think The Princess Bride belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, I think the 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 arguments made um so far kind of as regards the cast and the 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 um uh, storytelling and just kind of like the the whole adventure of it that that's all very persuasive. Um I I I um, I'm not going to kind of argue against that, but I'm 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 not I'm not certain that I want to argue for it. And I think it's probably got to do with more with the second question. As in, I think when we did right. the Indiana Jones movies, um, I thought like, like, like I, 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 watching it, like it feels like it's maybe like intentionally kind of cheap looking and, 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 and that that's <laughs> kind of like part of the charm maybe of this movie as well, yeah. where it feels like a kind of like a theme park or something, you know? Um, yeah. Or a, like a stunt show or something. Like a school play or something. Yeah. That's a kind of like a really fancy, really expensive school play quality where like it's matte paintings and the, the like the bricks are clearly made of cardboard yeah. or plastic and stuff. It has that kind of vibe to it. Especially I can see that. Exactly. When they, get, when they do the story. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, it's got like, hey, we're in a studio written all over it. But shut up. <laughs> The moment where he lands on a piece of dirt that like like presses like a bed, like a mattress, uh, that perfectly square piece of dirt that bends like a mattress under him, I can I can I can get that. And like again, that's something I think maybe we'll talk about in the spoiler zone. Where like I have I have a certain tension with this movie myself actually. Um, but in terms of, of for myself, I think it probably does like for yeah. a, a number of reasons. Um, I think like. It, probably merits its place on the list because a there aren't a lot of comedies on there we've talked about this before there is a fairly significant comedy deficit on the list um and so it's really good to kind of see that i mean is there a fancy deficit when you have the three lord of the rings movies no no i mean maybe not but you have, I, yeah, I kind of i you have the the harry potter movie as well which 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 doesn't really you have, deserve you have to half be a harry potter movie what you have a half harry a harry potter, potter. yeah like and and I know like, you like have people Deathly people Hollows really Part like, Two, yeah. um, the Harry Potter books, and and it's great for those people to have a um, all of those movies, but it's not really a movie. It's not uh, it, uh, half a movie. It it doesn't really kind of stand on its own. Um, it would be strange if somebody had a as a project like us to watch the top two hundred fifty movies of all time. And they have this sort of like relic um, where where it doesn't really make sense in any context unless you've seen all of the movies. Um, and leading up to it. Yeah. Well, again, yeah, I, guess I, I think that's kind of fair. And again, we argue that with like Lord, Lord of the Rings as well. Like, are they three individual movies or are they a single movie that has been split into three parts? And I, I think that like, I kind of think The Princess Bride, ignoring, even setting aside the comedy aspect of it, like as a relic of a certain kind of fantasy as well. Because it's, it's a very 80s fantasy in that, like, it's not, like, again, it's very different from the Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings stuff, where it's not necessarily high fantasy in terms of dealing with world-ending stakes. It's just a story that takes place in a fantastical world with fantastical it's, elements yeah. in it. It's in Earth. <laughs> this, uh, they, 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 <laughs> they, they talk about, like, Sicily, Greenland, Spaniards, yeah. Patagonia. 
Um, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Sp- um, Spain, Spaniards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. um, I give you my word as a Spaniard. I've known too many Spaniards. It's also um, very 80s because it's got Mark Knopfler on doing the soundtrack. So, I mean, how many films can say they have something that sounds that rooted in its time? Um, you're like, I know who that is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Single it's synthesizer. Like, thank you very much. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you I was thinking you were going to say that there aren't that many kids movies on the list, but there, I, I suppose there's there's loads of kids <laughs> movies on the list. It's just that they're really popular with adults who don't like to think of them as kids movies. Um, I suppose. Yes, I was I was waiting for you to I was waiting for the punch to land there, but yes, that I kind of figured that was where the argument was going. But I, even even like the Marvel movies, like um, like they're kind of, um, I mean they're big kind of uh, movies for everyone um but yeah they they are they like like they i did think about kind of like what our parents generation have been watching these movies if they were on <laughs> or is it just kind of like a product of our infantilization anyway i'm not going to go on a soapbox that- about that <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you, Simon Pegg, uh, for joining <laughs> us for this discussion. Um, but no, I, I, I kind of get that. And I mean, I guess there is that argument about this as well, where this is like, this is a, a monument of like 80s childhood that is preserved as an artifact in yeah. that, like it is a a movie that 80s kids kind of grew up with and kind of loved. And again, the question of like, you have so many of these movies, like um, The Goonies, for example, is one of them, or Hocus Pocus, where like, because they hit a certain generation at the right age, they kind of like worm their way into becoming classics where like i look i don't i don't want to be mean but i don't think hocus pocus is good um and i don't necessarily okay okay i was mean i apologize i that's like saying (laughs) space jam isn't good space jam (laughs) i know but yeah no i agree with you and that it's not maybe an amazing film but it it represents something to people and i think if i just look i was just scrolling through the imdb top 250 there and like to me if Princess Bride wasn't on it, it would be really notable for its absence. There's not on it right now, <laughs> but when it's not on it, yeah. you're like, oh, that should be in there too. You know what I mean? It's just got such a resonance to people of a certain age who will adore a lot of the other films on this. And it, it's so unique as well, you know, and I like the idea of having a unique film rather than like three Lord of the Rings films. No offense, Lord of the Ring fans, please don't come at me. But like, you can put <laughs> one on, surely. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh no! We we had that when we talked about Dune. When I was like, "Look, if if we if we could put Dune on, if we just cut like one Star Wars or one Lord of the Rings," and the reaction I got in the room, um, I was I was not the Muad'Dib in that moment. <laughs> I have to say, inconceivable. Um, there we go. Yeah. It was inconceivable. I would I would I would I would definitely be down with that bargain. I would. I did. <laughs> you mean you mean um, you mean the David Lynch Dune, right? Oh. Sure, oh, sure. Right. I thought that's what I presumed as well. He went, but no, Villeneuve's one. Villeneuve's doing. Let's oh, move on swiftly. All right, all right, and and so that's that, another that, half a movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Andrew appears to be taking his soapbox out again. He's just dusting it off. Uh, appears to be taking a big run up towards it. Um, so Eva. Would The Princess Bride be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favourite movies? Well, as I'm very transparent on this topic, yes. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, God, you know, we all have these films that like represent a certain period of our life for us and that are like these little touchstones. So for me, it's like a real childhood touchstone. When I watch the film, when I think about it, it has this important meaning to me. So aside from it being like a good film or a great cult film or technically 
bit dodgy but a great storytelling uh film it means something to me and it also reminds me of like my family um you know my siblings and the house we lived in at the time and it also reminds me of like you know having videotapes and taking ages to return them to the video shop and owing them money <laughs> as I did many time when I was a child um and all that sort of stuff so it's it's a real thing from a particular time you know probably the Probably the early 90s, maybe for me, more than the late 80s, because I was probably, I was too young when it came out, it was probably about four or five when it came out. So yeah, for me personally, it would be on, on my list. But I think if you were someone who came to it as an adult, I can see why you'd be like, this is, this is great, but like, it's never going to be on my personal, you know, top 250 films, um, because it doesn't have that personal resonance, maybe when you're a little bit older. Could be wrong, but... It's kind of like, again, this is one of the things that's really interesting about The Princess Bride, because when it was released, it really, it was released to very enthusiastic reviews. And like you, we mentioned there, like Reiner was on a hot streak. He was being praised as like the next great American director. And everyone's like, this is a logical continuation of that trend. And a lot of people were like, look, Hollywood has been feeding a schlop when it comes to fantasy movies. They finally got the fantasy kind of genre right. Ebert's like, look, this is like legend, but good. Um, That sort of thing. Like everybody was very enthusiastic for it. But it didn't really play particularly well. It earned, I think, $30 million on a $16 million budget, which was profitable or yeah, was good, but not necessarily great. I think Reiner has said that it took a decade for the movie to turn a profit, uh, which is, again, Hollywood accounting. One wonders how exactly that works. But like there are stories about how, you know, famously, like he had to battle with the studio to get it made. Um, and like he said, you know, like Reiner said that when he was making it, he was very worried that it was going to be like The Wizard of Oz. And it was like, it will be a movie that will be released and become a classic eventually when everybody realizes how brilliant it is, but it will make no money on initial release. And then like, I think there's a, there's a the moment where like the head of Fox pulls Reiner aside and says, Rob, don't let anybody hear you say that you do not want this movie to be like The Wizard of Oz. Um, that's the wrong message. You want it to be like The Wizard of Oz. Um, but they found that like, you know, Test audiences who were convinced to see it loved it, uh, but they were all college students. They were not the target audience. Um, Fox's marketing department had a great deal of difficulty selling. And again, we've talked about this with Disney when it comes to the Disney animated movies. Uh, the weird perception that you have in the American marketplace like of boys and girls movies, where like The Princess Bride was a movie that seemed gendered towards girls and so didn't attract boys to go see it. And like Carrie Elways has talked about how like they had to pull the first trailer for the movie because it was so bad. Fox didn't know how to advertise the movie. They had to pull the trailer out of theaters because it was doing more damage than good promoting the movie. Um, and like, again, the idea of like, you know, how do you sell it? Is it a comedy? Is it an adventure film? Is it a kid's movie? Is it a fairy tale? Is it an adult's movie? And it's all these things. It's everything. It's every, that's it exactly. The genius of it. <laughs> it has fencing, fighting, and horse riding, and monsters, <laughs> pirates. and and pirates. Yeah. Peter Falk. <laughs> yeah. But like, like, and again, like you'll have these moments where like they'll say like, again, in As You Wish, which is the, the really good book I wholeheartedly recommended from Elways, where like he asked many cast members when they realized the movie had become a hit. And many of them are like, it was a decade after it was released. It's so like Reiner is like, I was sitting down having lunch with a friend talking about how I got my first residual check for it a decade after it was released. And like a woman came over and said it literally saved her life. 
She talked about how, like, during an avalanche, um, herself and some friends had been trapped. And, like, she had been able to recite the entirety of The Princess Bride in order to keep the group's morale up while they waited to be rescued. And Reiner's like, that is amazing. Nobody could do that with This Is Spinal Tap. Nobody could do that with When Harry Met Sally. Um, And then you have, like, moments where... (laughs) (laughs) Whether you should or not is another question. Uh, but like and you have a moment where like Carrie Elways is like when he realized it was like was when he was ordering lunch in a restaurant in New York and the waitress said you know how would you like the steak and he said medium rare and she said as you wish and he looked up at her and he was like wait what did you just say and then she just winked and walked off and he's like now there's not a day goes by that I don't hear as you wish Um, meanwhile Wally Sean uh, Wallace Sean has talked about how like he has a much harder time than Carrie Elway's because every time any misfortune befalls him whatsoever like if he drops his keys for example or if he struggles to open a car door there will always be a smart ass behind him shouting inconceivable um, as if they're the first person to have the idea to do that but again it's, it's kind of remarkable how the movie gradually kind of crept up to be a kind of a cult classic but Andrew, would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? I don't think it would. Um, my 1987 movie is Robocop. <laughs> as, as you tried to t- team me up uh, earlier for the obligatory Robocop reference. And I think in terms of like kids movies, although I I, dis- I did discover this, I, I, I think I, I, I was into, um, I was big into Home Alone. I loved Hook. Yeah, it was like a big one, and and I Ooh. I just kind of had my favorite movies, and this wasn't um, uh, uh, one of them. And and it, it it's that's not to say that there's anything wrong with it. It's just that it wasn't it wasn't that for me, you know. Yeah, like even um, I didn't have a big re- uh, reaction to um, Lion King, for same. example. Even yeah, though same. I was, yeah, Lion King was. I was kind of the right yeah. age for it. Or Star Wars, or yeah. But the, the, I, 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 I like like I had a big reaction to the Jim Carrey movies, like um, uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask. Ditto. <laughs> I'm uh, Batman Forever, which you hate, Darren. <laughs> um, I do hate Batman Forever, but we will we will inevitably end up talking about that at some point somehow. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no. No, that makes sense. But, but um yeah no it just it wasn't my childhood. I I I I enjoyed it but no it, it wouldn't be wouldn't be on my list. I really enjoyed it. I like watching it um last night. It was great. But it, no, not not for me. Um I kind of again sit between Aoife and kind of Andrew on this where this is a movie that I greatly admire and really really enjoy and actually I was I've been waiting for a guest to say they want to talk about it for a while because I like I really want to kind of get somebody who loves this and kind of have them like celebrate it and kind of like adore it because it feels like it kind of deserves it. But I've always been, I found myself kind of not at at odds is a very confrontational way of putting it, but there's a tension in the movie that I I can't quite square myself, um, which is the question of like how serious and how earnest Mm. this is and the extent to which it is using humor to basically justify being straightforward and earnest and the question of where the joke ends, the sincerity begins and whether or not that really matters and whether we're using irony instead of sincerity and like whether it's, it's again, this movie, this movie stars Robin Wright um, and it, 
it gives me weird Forrest Gump vibes where I am not entirely sure. We've talked about this in the podcast before where like my big problem with Forrest Gump is I don't know how seriously I'm meant to take this. Yeah. Where I'm like, is Forrest Gump this kind of saccharine greatest generation kind of like cautionary tale about the nightmare of the 60s and the ideal of American exceptionalism? Or is it a brutally dark satire in which, like, the perfect American is a barely functional individual who just blindly wanders through history with no sense of context, place, or understanding? Like, is it this kind of saccharine tale about how brilliant America is or this really dark tale about how the only way to survive America is to basically be uh, numb to everything? And I can never figure out which of those two things it is because it might be both of them simultaneously. And The Princess Bride is, like, less of that, but... It, oh, sorry. I guess movies aren't, like, puzzles where you figure it out. Yeah. Like, they, 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 it's fair. kind of like, what does Princess Bride mean for you? To you. To or me. to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, I, on, on the, uh, on the uh, Forrest Gump thing, I was listening to, what's like, a podcast or something recently where Tom Hanks was saying, there was Dead Eyes, where Tom Hanks was saying that his accent in, in that film came from the child actor who was playing him spoke like that so he took on his accent and there was a clip of him I think speaking or maybe he did it speaking without that accent and it completely changed for me the character I don't know if that ties into what you're saying there Darren maybe that's really well, well commonly known but I hadn't heard that before and I thought it's I those kind of things either. can come into come into play was, um, was there a really bad um, accent child who, who played Tom Parker as a child <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Elvis is in cinemas this weekend. Um, Nobody knows what Tom Parker sounds like. Just don't do that. (laughs) I don't like. Is it what Tom Parker sounds like? Because even if it is, even if it's like a perfect impersonation, it's like don't ever do that. Don't do that. I do love the idea that for Cloud Atlas, he found six separate child yeah. children and was like, I'm going to pick one of their accents for each of these. Um, you're going to be Declan. You sound like you're you're from, I think he's meant to be Northern Irish. I'm not entirely sure. Is, um, is Tom Hanks uh, bad now? No, he's not bad. I don't think Tom Hanks is bad now. Don't just besmirch the good name of Tom Hanks. I mean, sorry. I <laughs> will say he was podcast. terrific. <laughs> he was terrific in... Um, Borat. Uh, We're at two. Beautiful day in the, in the neighborhood, or it's sorry, yeah. yes, I keep that's forgetting recent. the name yeah. of that movie because there's the other, um, there's the documentary as well. Yeah. Is, yes. It is beautiful day in the neighborhood, isn't it? Won't you be my neighbor? Is the uh, oh, won't, won't you be, be my neighbor? Is the documentary? Sure. Look, yeah. both of them are about the same lads, so both of them are amazing, but <laughs> yes, and and well worth kind of seeking out. But yeah, I think like that. Okay, fine. To, to, to bring Andrew's Sorry. observation back, my issue is that I can't resolve that. My issue isn't that the movie doesn't resolve that. My issue is that when I'm watching it, I have these again, and it's it's that idea of genius. Is genius holding two conflicting ideas in your head at the same time? And I'm like, yeah, maybe the movie is a genius, but I feel like I can't. <laughs> or maybe a... I'm a genius. Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Darren says immodestly, puffing on his pipe. It's you um, so, holding so... <laughs> those two opposing ideas in your mind. Darren. But I'm not. <laughs> Resolving them, I can't like I'm. That's what makes you genius. <laughs> Sorry, Eva. No, but I, I like I like that because what you're saying there because when I was a kid, obviously I wasn't getting like a load of the layers to this, but there would be moments where you'd be like, oh, this thing is, feels slightly different, you know, the tone of it or or the way people behave is slightly different. But I really liked the quirkiness of it because it felt really kind of British to me, like the Monty Python aspects to it came out but obviously again when you're a kid you just know that from watching sketches or from seeing bits on the telly or whatever and not really realize realize kind of what that reference is or that what you're even seeing but it felt 
not very American to me in a lot of places. And I think that maybe helped with the understanding or accepting the tone to it. Because you're right, it can be a little bit that you're like, oh, this is, a, you know, a love story and a fantasy love story. And it's about this, like, you know, um, this couple who fall in love or whatever. But then there's all these really odd moments. And I like that idea that when you're an adult, you can kind of un- try and unpack that a bit more and kind of be like, Where, like, is it a satire on this? Or are they like fully into it? Um, or what or maybe it's all at the same time too you know yeah like it maybe it's it's kind of like again maybe that's what makes it brilliant mm. but it is it is what i maybe what why i really admire it like I, I think it's brilliant it's eminently quotable it is hugely enjoyable the cast are fantastic the movie breezes by it is a brisk 98 minutes which is is phenomenal and what it manages to cram in there it tells a story that has a clear beginning middle and end its characters are memorable and well defined like it is a really well made movie no matter what but it just it for me it it doesn't get over that line into like Darren's kind of perfect pool of movies mm. I'd kind of be more of as you said like a Monty Python and the, the Holy Grail kind of thing where I, I'd prefer if you're doing satire kind of lean into it a bit sharper and I think like it, like again this is a connection the movie makes there is a cameo is it from Terry Jones I think has a cameo playing the, the minister oh, it's no it's Terry Jones that's Peter, that's, that's Peter Cook. Oh, Peter Cook. Oh, sorry. He always he always reminded Mowage. me of Terry Jones. He had like a, like a face. Mowage. Mowage. Uh, Mowage. I love that character. <laughs> sorry, you're going to be really tormented but... with my terrible impressions. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. I've practiced it many a time. <laughs> <laughs> you also have Mel Smith from like Not the Nine O'clock News. So good. Um, yeah. Smith and Jones. Yeah. So good. The He's coughing. Good. It's probably for the spoiler zone, but that yeah. is one of the most amazing genius comedic comedic moments. Yes. On screen. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like, so, so that sort of stuff. Like again, and like the movie was sold internationally, like to foreign audiences. I think in Denmark, like it was, it was sold as if it was a sequel to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, wow. where like the I believe the the translation in Danish for Monty Python and the Holy Grail was Arthur and the Crazy Knights. <laughs> And like the release of this was The Princess and the Crazy Knights, wow. as if to convince you that you were seeing a stealth sequel to a Monty Python movie uh, in wonderful bits of advertising, because clearly Fox didn't know how to sell this movie, but Danish Fox did. Um, all right, then. So, Aoife, if listeners have not already seen The Princess Bride, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I always believe that they should listen fully to the podcast and listen all the way to the end. <laughs> Even if, even though we'd be talking about spoilers. Um, so, you know, maybe close your ears, but keep the podcast going. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always recommend people see this if they haven't, because it's, you know, that classic thing of like, I love this film, so everybody should watch it. But I don't think they kind of make films like this anymore. <laughs> That's a real cliche to say. But like, what, can we name any films that have come out that are remotely like this film? It feels very innocent in its way. It feels very like of its time. And also, like the world is grim. Like we need escapism and this film is a lovely bit of escapism and I think going back to like childhood stuff, particularly like the child character and it played by Fred Savage, like you really brought back this real childhood innocence and I think that we need moments like that. So for regardless of anything else, you give yourself 98 minutes of like respite from Twitter and that is the reason in itself to watch this glorious film. I like that. And if you watch it twice, you, you give yourself like, what, 196 minutes of, of Even respect. better. Um, Even better. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream The Princess Bride to a local device? Absolutely. Absolutely. As, as, as we've kind of said, it's a, it's a great cast. It's hilarious. Um, and it's, it's, it's got so much kind of um, just fun and adventure and kind of imagination to it. Like the fact that it, 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 it 
you know that it's not based on this large property i guess uh, um yeah is um and it's never been franchised either which is like like they they've been talking about like there was a profile of norman lear in variety where they suggested offhand that they would make a remake of the movie and it seemed to mobilize all of hollywood against the very idea which was kind of incredible to see yeah. it was like a rare moment where they were like let's franchise this property and everybody was like no hands off this is not yours you don't get to do wow. that which was kind That's of so unusual kind of isn't it nobody ever that, usually yeah. like yeah let's just remake everything do you know <laughs> so, yeah. i actually really hate i hate most remakes as in like i hate the idea of remaking not, not I hate most remakes, but the Princess Bride's daughter. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm I mean, just like, like, lads, there's brilliance of people writing amazing scripts. Make one of those. It just shows the kind of closed-mindedness, obviously, of the industry. But that's probably for another well, podcast or another pod episode. I, I joke about that, but like, there is the famous like Buttercup's daughter, which like Goldman had said like he wanted to do a like again, and this is the level of uh, kind of uh, metafiction within the book. So in the book. Goldman references that there was a sequel Morganston wrote that has been unearthed by Florian scholars called Buttercup's Daughter, and he was engaged in an extensive legal battle with Morganston's estate to publish it. Um, and in the book, he says, and you you know, if you want private correspondence, it's available via my agent over the subject. And if you wrote in like in 1973, if you wrote a letter to the publisher of The Princess Bride, you would get a letter back from the character of, uh, as we mentioned, William Goldman, explaining the legal battle that he was currently in and offering you the first chapter of Buttercup's Daughter uh, that he had managed to get the legal rights to share with you and to promise that he would release. And over the years, like, Goldman would, like, tweak the letter. So if you wrote, like, after the film came out, there'd be references to, oh, by the way, the estate is very eager to get a hold of the profits from the film. We're hoping that we can get a sequel moving. Um, But, like, yeah, it was kind of like like the alternate reality kind of game that was being played but yeah he, he could never get a kind of a sequel uh made to it although uh, we should note that the film has had like a rich like afterlife it's notable that like jason reitman did a read-through um of the kind of of the the play with the or of the screenplay with like a wonderful cast in it and there was obviously the pandemic remake which did surprisingly well which was for charity like obviously there was the the famous Gal Gadot Imagine video in the <laughs> pandemic, yeah. which, which which did not garner a very particularly positive uh, response. It stopped COVID. Um, that video stopped it. It, it did single handedly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, the the woman can work miracles. I mean, we don't really appreciate uh, Gal Gadot, but like off the back of that, there was the idea. Rainer had the idea of doing like a remake of the Princess Bride in in lockdown with all these celebrities, where every scene would be different actors, uh, like in their backyards reenacting particular scenes from the movie and they reconstructed the movie from it and it was like really really charming and really heartwarming and i think they did some other kind of table read of the movie for charity which was like a donate what you want which which garnered money as well so the movie obviously has a long and rich afterlife but like yeah it, it, it hasn't been sequelized it hasn't been remade it hasn't been franchised which is kind of incredible sorry andrew that's a sorry to cut you off there no 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 did you cut me off I think I think it, I think you were I think you were remarking how great it was that the movie was never like it wasn't a big franchise juggernaut or a piece of like lore or whatever. That's yeah, of stuff. Be, it because it, it it feels like a very rich world that it's kind of set in. You know that it, that it, there is so much kind of there are so many iconic um, characters and set pieces um, uh, within within quite a short movie. Yeah, um, yeah. it just goes like. Um, from 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 one to 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 the next, watching it back, I had kind of forgotten, but it, um, and then I was like, oh, brilliant! <laughs> I was kind of reminded of every aspect of the movie. 
it's one of those movies where like every scene is fantastic yeah. like that's yeah. the thing where it's like i think you've you've talked about this phenomenon before where it's like you like you remember so many great scenes you're like the movie must be like two and a half hours long because you you obviously you have all the great scenes but there has to be like shoe leather between them and this movie is just a great scene great scene great scene yeah. great scene great scene which is kind of incredible it totally is. Um, and i think sorry just to say as well i think i, I agree there that like the idea of letting the film stand on its own and not doing anything quote unquote with it I really like that. It just keeps it really pure. And I think sometimes you just need to let things be. Sometimes it's great to obviously have a franchise or, you know, I mean, everybody loves Star Wars fans love that you can have kind of your multiple trilogies and that brings so much richness. Do, do they love that? Okay, well, I don't know that Star Wars fans <laughs> do love that. Star Wars fans. But we, if we go back to the maybe the, the tradition of like the first trilogy, at least you got three films there, right? Who knew you'd have nine? Um you know, there are times when we when we like that when things spin off and we get more out of a really rich world. Um, there are times when it goes overboard, um, but there are also times when it's really nice to have something like that you then are left to imagine, well, what would they do if they actually decided to give Buttercup her own film or whatever? And that like imagination is, is really nice to have rather than somebody handing it to you on a plate, I think. So I'm a big fan of like letting things be as well, you know. And and for myself, yeah, for everything that Andrew and Anifa said, absolutely wholeheartedly recommend this. It is a joy to watch and it just breezes by. So do yourself a favor, watch this right now. Even if you have even if you've seen it before, even if you haven't watched it in a couple of years, it's just it's really good. Go go do it uh, and join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! Spoiler zone. Okay, well, because we're in the spoiler zone now, we're going to delay the question. We're going to ask you the question in a second. I feel like I need to, we need to spoil the movie in a very real sense. Yeah. I mentioned one of the cast members is probably cancelled. I think I, you both said you had a guess. I've written who, it down. Oh, you've written it down. Note that Andrew has yeah. his video camera off, so I can't verify that. Oh, but. inconceivable. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> inconceivable. He's all of the names of all the cast down, yeah. so no matter what you say, yeah. Andrew will be right. Yeah. <laughs> Do I step in a soundproof booth? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Andrew, yeah. do you want to go first? I'm going to... Will we say it at the same time, Aoife? Okay. Three? I just feel like I'm going to be so horribly wrong on this that I might just stay silent. <laughs> we'll go three, two, one, but like maybe you do the talking. Okay. <laughs> three, two, one, and Aoife just going... stays silent. Um... Yeah. Could <laughs> I like cast aspersions on people? Yeah. Oh, hang on. I think I know. I think, okay. Oh, okay. I've changed my mind. Right, okay, right, go on, go right. on, go on. Yeah. Okay. So three, two, one. Brand Savage? <laughs> yes, Aoife's right. Oh really? Yeah, Fred Savage, the adorable well, kid Savage in the front. Seem like a Trump guy. Is that what it is? Or, <laughs> no, or, or is no, no, it's, no, no. It's yeah, slightly worse than that. Unfortunately, yeah. it's quite, quite bad. It turns out that mm. it came out, I think, a couple of years ago. That like he was on the Wonder Years um, in the like eighties and nineties, and it turned out that that show was. Oh, we canceled. knew that already. <laughs> that's, that's why he, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 yeah we, the wonder years we finally watched the wonder years and it turns out they're terrible no there was a sexual it was cancelled because of a sexual harassment lawsuit involving oh, him yeah. and one of his co-stars uh, yes while he was a teenager there was mm. another uh, lawsuit that was settled out of court on The Grinder, which was the show that he had with Rob Lowe uh, which, you know, yeah, you're like a show with Rob Lowe and, and the problem turns out not to be Rob Lowe uh, and then obviously the wonder years reboot um, has been cancelled because of another lawsuit around Savage's uh, behaviour uh, while on the set. So yeah, that is... God, that is... I would not have guessed. No, no. No, that was not the... the part. You did mention Mandy Patinkin, and Mandy Patinkin, I think, is, is quite interesting because he's owned... 
he's owned being a very difficult actor to work with um, yeah. on previous sets. That's why I thought maybe mm. maybe he had been like mean to people and that was oh. all it kind of was. But um... Well, I, I did jokingly reference like that the only difficult stuff on set involved one particular actor and like Patekin has kind of owned that it was him. So, like, there were, like, moments where, like, Andre the Giant, who is great in the movie and is, like, a French, he's a French wrestler. English is not his first language. He's not a professional screen actor, even though he's a wrestler. But he was having difficulty remembering his lines. And there was a scene that he had with Potemkin, and Potemkin just got so tired of it. He just walked up to Andre the Giant, slapped him in the face, uh, and the entire cast kind of just froze because Andre the Giant is several times the size of Mandy Potemkin. Mm-hmm. And then they rolled the scene again and Andre the Giant remembered all of his scenes. There was another moment where he was dueling with Christopher Guest, who obviously plays the Count, who famously murdered Inyeo Matoya's father, uh, prepared to die. Uh, but while they were dueling, uh, Potenkin had been practicing fencing uh, so well that he managed to stab uh, Christopher Guest in the thigh with his sword. Uh, a guest apparently spent the entire rest of the movie terrified that Potemkin was going to stab him again. Um, and Potemkin is an actual aristocrat as well. <laughs> yes, he is. He's a member of the House of Lords. He's a hereditary lord. He's a baron, isn't he? He's like a baron. Of course, yeah. all that stuff is fake. Mandy, Mandy Potemkin is. Uh, no, no, Christopher no, Guest. Christopher Guest is like, that makes more sense than Mandy Potemkin. <laughs> like, I don't know this. <laughs> um, yeah. It's like, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now, to Sorry. be fair, he's one of those guys who's argued for the abolishment of like hereditary lordships, or to be re- fair. Reform Fairness. of it, yeah. 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 Um, and I believe oh he's married God. to Jamie Lee Curtis as well, which is kind of that's amazing. Like, yeah. Since like the 80s. Yeah, what, a cute, is, what a cute little couple. It's fantastic. Like one of those great Love Hollywood him. couples. Um, yeah, but yeah, and, and Potenkin's kind of talked about how like that thing where the like, for And again, because Potenkin is a very intense actor, uh, and mm. I kind of love that about him. And I do, mm. like, I really love that in his later years, he's been like, you know, I was intense and an asshole. It wasn't, like, it was ne- like that thing where it's like, I That's was only... That's why I thought yeah. it was, it was going to be him. But I, I do, do I get any points? <laughs> <laughs> On our game that we shall be cancelled for. Yeah, which is, uh, yeah, which yeah. Is I, yeah, I do feel like, yeah, that was the, the real spoiler zone where we spoil individual actors for you. But no, but well, I think... We, uh, we've also spoiled that game. We, we have indeed. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, but it was supposed to be fun. Now, <laughs> the, yeah, sorry. Anyway. Um, but anyway, so Aoife, yeah. what is The Princess Bride about for you? Oh, wow. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this film over the last two days. Um, so it's about a couple of things, I think. And I think the older you get, when you go back and watch it, it becomes about different stuff. So when I was a kid, it was about the love story. You know, it was about this this couple like farm boy, you know, and beautiful buttercup. And, you know, Carrie always with his like little blonde fringe being like, as you wish and all that sort of stuff. And it was just like, wow, it's all about, you know, true love. And they get through all of these things. He even dies mostly dead in it and survives and they're together at the end that's beautiful then you when you get past that you're like oh it's also about kind of friendship and people who are like supporting each other and the fact that you know some of the baddies in it actually aren't baddies quote unquote and that there's kind of goodness in in people um and then there's full evil in people like chris chris um sarrington's character and then when i watched it this time i really got like the fatherhood stuff on it too it like had never really occurred to me about Inigo montoya's like quest to kill the man who killed his father. When I was a kid, I didn't really, I was like, oh yeah, it was a great part of the film, but the emotional resonance of that didn't hit me in a way that it hit me when I just watched it again this week. Despite multiple viewings of it, I thought, wow, 
And when I when I read and kind of listened to things talking about Mandy Patinkin's approach to it, because he had lost his father a, a few years before he made the film. And for him, it was like this imaginary way of getting revenge on the man who killed his imaginary father in the film and getting his father back. That just hit me in a way that I think, wow, it hadn't at all before. And I think as an adult, these kind of things about parental stuff can hit you in, in a different way at different stages of life. So for me, that was a big part of it that that I didn't maybe get before and that's been a nice element of it to to dig into so it's about a lot of things it's about quests as well you know isn't it it's about like following your heart and and getting revenge on the bad guys and I think that's also why people and kids love it because it's simple you know it surprises you but it's kind of simplistic as well too the the good stuff happens that you want to happen and the baddies get punished and I mean in terms of the father stuff it's worth kind of mentioning that like one of the big differences between the film and the book is that like the father is like the central character in the book but is entirely absent in the movie and like yeah. that that's the thing it's like and it's be very clear that like peter falk is the the boy's dad's father paternal but yeah. he's a paternal grandpa because he read the book he read it to, to his father yeah. and then and my so there's... father read it to me yeah. And now I'm going to read it to you. And it's just like, hold on. Yeah, That's there's something lovely. wrong. There's something missing. There's an, uh, there's an absent link in this particular chain. Yeah. And I find that kind of interesting because, again, it, it's one of those very 80s things where, like, obviously, like, E.T., you know, other classics like Mac and Me, The Karate Kid, um, all these, all <laughs> these movies. Mac and Me! I haven't heard anybody mention that film in years. <laughs> I, I, I got so scared watching E.T. when I was six. I started bawling, crying, watched the, ho the whole thing, bawled my eyes out. And then when I was about... 16 decided to watch it and then watch Mac and me because I like refused to watch Mac and me because I knew there was something similar in it anyway that's very <laughs> and, and did Mac and me <laughs> scar you more my or less than E.T. Um... <laughs> I think it wasn't as bad because I prepared myself by watching E.T. again but like I was kind of pretty traumatized by both those films like, the, the thing about anyway. watching Mac and me is that you realize how like cute E.T. is by comparison like, like <laughs> when you watch E.T. you're like that's not a pretty alien but then no. you watch Mac and me and you're like this E.T. could have gone so much so far wrong <laughs> um, that was actually quite a beautiful design um, oh my god but like yeah like th you, there is that absent father thing yeah. sorry Andrew sorry is it do you sound like Javier Bardem uh, yeah there. <laughs> it is it is Javier Bardem sorry I love that this has become a recurring motif this year on the 250 Javier Bardem's crush on E.T. like his sexual <laughs> awakening watching E.T. and it's something we keep coming back to for some inexplicable oh god. reason it's kind of a little bit hard to understand. It is. Once the image is in your head, it can't get mm. out of there. Um, Javier Bardem mm. watching E.T. raising his eyebrows and feeling things that he never knew that he could feel before. Um, that's his. Takes all kinds, you know, takes all sorts. Does no Whatever. judgment on this podcast. Yeah, um, totally. But I, I do think there is something very interesting there in terms of, again, it being an 80s movie and kind of it fitting in that milieu. And the idea that, yeah, that there is this missing father figure and the idea that that features, like bleeds down into the story that's being told because obviously i mean arguably you could say even like humperdinck's like father the king who is sickly yeah. and, and impotent and like you know dies in a dream sequence but is like present but largely powerless and might as well yeah. be absent because like humperdinck is the prince but he seems to basically rule the kingdom anyway uh but even things like as you mentioned you know matoya's kind of like father and the idea of avenging himself for the father and trying to make that connection to his father the great swordsman whose work he kind of carries on again the same way that the grandfather passes the story that you know he told to his father to the grandson I, I, anyway, I do think there is something I don't I don't think that's what the film is about or I don't yeah. know if it's like I don't know if like Rob Reiner was Agreed. sitting down going, I'm one of those great meditations on American like fatherhood. But it's kind of interesting that it just ripples through the various layers of the story. And again, it, it's a very 80s thing. It, it feels 
it feels like it's really not about the even though it is it is a romance and kind of the the kind of arc is getting um Fred Savage's character to kind of get on board with the 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 romance and the it being a kissing book but Robin <laughs> Wright <laughs> but Robin Wright is very lightly drawn and yes. it doesn't feel like a good um movie for her she doesn't seem like much of a character and the movie um, yeah she's just beautiful isn't you know it's it's with like looking at it now when we've gone through a lot more decades not that nobody was analyzing uh films in a feminist way back then because obviously they were and had been for a number of decades but like the idea of looking at it now you really see how her character is really just a woman in love who looks beautiful i think towards the end she feels like there is a little bit more power, but that power is her saying she'll end her life. You know, the only power she has is to say, I'm just going to remove myself from this mortal coil if you don't give me what I want. And what I want is a man. And, you know, when they're in the um, in the swamp, when they get attacked by the rodents of unusual size, um, she just stands <laughs> there, like totally doesn't do anything. And then like kind of pokes at one of them in the nose. And like, I thought that like looking at it now is like, She's kind of useless. Like, get in there. Yeah. Like, there's a, there's a sword on the ground somewhere, surely, Buttercup. Like, pick it up. Kill someone. She's a bit of, she's a bit of a rubbish queen. Mm. <laughs> I mean, queen of refuse. But like, but like that, yeah, trash that, queen. But like, um, that's it. Like, there's a how weird... many different ways can you say it? <laughs> I feel like you get the Putress. point across. Queen of putrescence. Yeah. But like, that's that's the thing like with with the Robin Wright stuff and again like the the Wright stuff is kind of interesting here where she had starred in she was starring in the soap opera Santa Barbara um while she was making this movie and like what happened is she had to take time off to make this movie because she got four years off a, off a year but that isn't enough to film an entire movie so they managed to extend her contract an extra year off the other end for the like three months that God. she took to make this yeah she's like that was not a fair trade but like her agent mm. and manager were like you have to take this role you have to take this role it's a big starring role in a rob reiner movie you don't want to miss that opportunity and she remembers actually like being like the movie is like and introducing robin wright um, mm. And she remembers being like, well, actually, I starred in a movie called Hollywood Vice uh, previous year in which like, you know, stars Carrie Fisher um, and like, I, I can't remember who else is in it, but it's a story about like a teenage girl who ends up like involved in prostitution. And it was like, I remember my agent saying, you can't. You can't say, I'm sorry, I actually starred in a movie where I played a teenage prostitute, uh, if they're saying introducing Robin Wright in The Princess Bride. But it's it's weird how the movie... The movie at times seems quite angry at the character of Buttercup. Like it, it, it the movie doesn't, doesn't yeah. like the moment where Wesley has the big bit where he's like, did you, did you get married within an hour or did you wait a week before you married the most powerful man in the realm who can pick any woman he wants to be his wife? Um, or the moment like where like himself, the count and the prince are walking and it's like, oh, she's, she's very comely. You can see the appeal of her. She's not very bright though, is she? And it just, it feels yeah. like the movie really gets beaten up by everyone. Like... Yeah. Yeah, she nearly gets she nearly gets hit by Wesley, you know, which that was oh, he another moment the fist, I thought, yeah. he raises the fist and that was a moment I was like, oh, oh gosh, that's one the one kind of thing you're like, you know, if you could edit out a bit, I'd edit out that bit. But yeah, I think you're right, and that I think there is a lot of anger shown towards her and 
yet I think what I what I maybe liked and picked up on when I was a kid was how she was very determined to just do what she wanted and she was willing to kind of give herself up in order to save Wesley's life which is like this romantic thing but also you know kind of self-sacrifice but it did show that she had she knew the power that she did have and she was willing to kind of wield that but she does suffer a lot like and, and in her dream then there's a dream sequence where we just going to reference there where she dreams about getting married to to um the prince and his and his dad dying and then because then her becoming a queen and her being shouted at in that very Monty Python-esque sequence and it clearly showed that she was really like worried and anxious so you get this like look into her psyche and how she's feeling and that's maybe one of the only moments where they take time to do that but she still gets heavily punished (laughs) in that dream too and not even in that dream like they cut then to Fred Savage saying like and you know but that can't Mm. be the end of it because like Wesley sacrificed so much he traveled so far it's like Wesley earned the right to get married to her like that for him yeah for him that's that's the problem here the problem isn't that she's marrying somebody she doesn't love it's that she's not marrying Wesley who clearly put in the work like again like I I really love the Princess Bride I don't want to be I don't want to be arguing like against it or think it's a bad movie where I don't want people to think I'm attacking it but there is like a really weird unpleasantness to the scene where like the dread pirate Roberts reveals himself to be Wesley kind of scene where he's so angry at her and it's like you're you know he told me that she was fair and of virtue but he can't have been describing you to come back (laughs) yeah he waited five years he was a free man yeah he was a pirate killing people and he's like and you went and got forced into a forced marriage with the most powerful man in the land because women here don't have any rights and here I now I'm going to be annoyed at you it's like "Mm, I don't know about that now Wesley you know it's a bit uh yeah, the gender politics of it aren't, aren't that advanced. Who knew? Yeah, I mean, there, there, it's, somebody pointed out that like Wesley's story here is basically, and this is a reference that I think maybe three people listening to the podcast are going to get, but it's a, it's very much the plot of like the, the tales of the Black Frigate from Watchmen by like Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore about this guy who's like attacked by pirates and who travels, like comes back to the woman he loves, but discovers that he's become a monstrous killing machine in the process. Except the princess bride is like eh you know if I didn't kill people my crew wouldn't respect me it's just part of being a pirate it's, you know but <laughs> you 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 did something unforgivable um which is kind of yeah kind of interesting I, again I, yeah. I I don't want to fault the movie too much but it is something I kind of noticed when the movie was kind of like trying to sell this effortless love story this timeless love mm. story between Buttercup and Wesley and it's like that's the thing where I wonder about this, because this is the thing where Andrew mentioned this a moment ago, where he's like, the arc of the movie is about like getting Fred Savage on board with the kissing book. Yeah. And like, it's very clearly that it's like, this is, is this a kissing book? He asks, like, I think 10 minutes into the film. And then oh, the movie ends with like, there are five kisses in human history that are considered the best and none of them compare to the kiss at the end of this. And the idea is like, Fred Savage is so on board by the end of it. But I do wonder, like, the Princess Bride uses irony to kind of like smuggle to get the audience on board which is kind of Mm. like where it's like it feels like it's one of those things where we mentioned like how difficult fantasy is to sell to an American audience how American audiences like weren't particularly enthused by movies like say Legend or Labyrinth or even Willow for example um and how like how difficult it was to get Lord of the Rings made and stuff like that it does feel like the Princess Bride is like yeah but if we if we kind of joke about the thing while we do it will we get away with doing it? And the question is like, how sincere is it? And does that matter? So like, are we meant to treat Wesley and Buttercup's romance as sweet and pure and brilliant and beautiful? uh, Like the text suggests that it is, or 
are we meant to see a layer of sarcastic irony kind of layered on top of that? Is Like, where does the movie fall, Aoife? Like, yeah, like... that's such a good question because, like, I think the fact that you do have Fred Savage's character as the little boy who's like, is this a kissing book, uh, etc., that he functions as a kind of a young audience member, or I mean, actually an audience member of any age who's maybe put off by romance stories. And basically he's in there to like act as the audience member to be like, I don't know how I feel about this. And then Peter Falk, beloved Peter Falk, is there to be like, no, stick with this. You know, it's worth it. It's got more than that to it. And it kind of shows that like, actually by the end, you actually kind of love the the romance anyway, as well as getting all of like your action and fairy tales and everything too. And I say that as someone who's not madly into fairy tales or anything. So I didn't even relate to this film almost a very tale of which is funny um but i get you that when you have those moments like when wesley reveals who he is that he's a, that he's the dread pirate roberts that it has that nastiness to it you're like oh actually are they kind of undercutting there this is a true love story thing and actually making the audience wince a bit or second guess about about stuff and you know sometimes as well the stupidity of some of the characters you're like are is that like are they being a bit mean? You know, like while Sean's character is so brilliant, but he's so ultimately dim and gets like such a terrible demise. He gets like one of the worst killings in it in, in a way. um, Like sheer embarrassment really is probably is probably the worst element of it. Then you're like, are, are we there just being mean to people and does that undercut this beautiful, lovely fairy tale thing that's going on? Or is it possible just to have both of those? And I like the idea of it having both, you know, of it like giving with one hand being like, here is this way of like interpreting a fairy tale and enjoying it when you didn't think you could, which is handy for maybe audiences needing to be spoon fed a little bit because the film would be really different if you didn't have that. It might not be as enjoyable. And then here is our little cutting cynicism in here too for those who might want to grab onto that. Yeah, I think it works on both on both um, levels. Like you, you, you can you can see it as kind of. Um, I think that it, it, it's 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 a strange, it's a strange relationship in a way because Wesley seems more of a kind of a loose sort of James Bond type. Totally, you know? the James Bond reference. Yeah, you're so right because yeah. he's very like sarcastic and, you know, debonair and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, sorry. Go on. So like. I, I don't know, like how how like what we're told. That's the thing. It just tells us that they're that they're pure that they of heart, in love, yeah, and mm. um and that's what it meant when he said that, and that their kiss was was like um not an old timer. Who was cataloging yeah, yeah. these five kisses? Is what I want to know. Like, and and yeah, I don't know. I mean. How, like is it by reputation did you have to have somebody on site do you need a witness to verify yeah. i mean i want to know what the process was for this I want to, that's it's two same cities. here same here um, yeah. very odd like uh, um <laughs> gibbon um <laughs> but but like like that that's the thing about this is that like again you could argue that like again and, and based on the book like one of the things about the book is that and again it's been years since i read it but like it feels like goldman is having a very direct go at people like J.R.R. Tolkien. Ken Burns also has a <laughs> top five kisses of the Civil War. Uh, has like a ranking of the top five kisses. He he made a 12-hour documentary for PBS <laughs> on the subject. Um, but Ken Burns kisses. Um, it's it's available on from all good DVD retailers now. Got a ring to it. Kisses of the Vietnam War as well. Got a ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, 
but like the, the thing is like if you if you, from what i remember reading the book it felt like goldman was having a go with people like tolkien where like tolkien will go on for pages after pages talking about things like like the history of a particular dress or the history of a particular stool or how to make hobbits grog or you know baggins or boggins or whatever sings songs tom bobadil sings songs for like 15 pages in the middle there um and like the, one of the it's great it's great to meet a fan um but the thing about like the princess bride is that it feels like it just cuts all of that stuff out yeah like it feels like the premise of the book is that goldman like read had this book read to him by his father and wanted to read it to his son and then bought a copy of it and realized it was a terrible book so began literally tearing pages out of it in order to make it more palatable to his son and so the the book is the book is somewhat mean i I would i think the book is a lot meaner than the film is like there are like i dug some stuff out from the the book like for this where like he He's joking about how fat his son is, for example, right. how you could like paint him yellow and he'd like, uh, was it, he could mop up the school sumo team, uh, which is, uh, yeah, a line. Lousy. Uh, not a great line. But it's also like things where Goldman himself is kind of flirting with a starlet on the phone while talking to his wife, for example, and stuff like that. Um, like there, there's a like a nastiness to the book that is kind of largely absent from the film, where the film, I think, feels a lot more pleasant it doesn't feel as sharp as something like we mentioned monty python and the holy grail but even say shrek shrek is an obvious point of comparison Mm. where you again you can even like like humperdinck is very obviously um obviously lord farquaad when he's not michael eisner um but it's very much like you can draw a straight line from one to the other but shrek is i think a much like sharper kind of more pokey less enjoying it for the sake of it more like pointing out the silliness of a kind of movie and i think like the trojan i think there's a lot i think there is a lot of sincerity in the movie yeah. and i think that's maybe why it resonates sorry Eva, would you agree with that or yeah no i totally agree because it's like it goes hard on the sincerity it goes hard on the love you know what i mean even if it's got the cynicism it still has like it still fully believes in the goodness that's in it you know what i mean and it's like that is what makes it so appealing and i think you know yeah, I, I like the idea that that it's not what it what appears to be on the surface, and that that there's more kind of you know layers to or whatever. But I I don't think there's anything missing by having that cynicism and love in together. But I do like I do think that that sincerity is what keeps people coming back to the film because even if you don't delve any deeper than that, you've got something kind of satisfying from from watching it. Um, and I have to say as well, like the fact that some of the characters are played by people you wouldn't expect to play them adds another level of excitement and interest to it as well too I think and that maybe gets it over the hump of any cynicism people might not be happy with perhaps so in terms of cast men so that's that's a nice kind of like gateway to it like in terms of like MVPs in the movie or like best casting like who who would you point to what would be your kind of frame of reference well for me I feel like the guests that like Billy Crystal uh is it Carol Kane um Mel Smith all of those moments like the ultimate comedy moments where you have people where you're just like I just loved their characters so much when I was a kid because I didn't know like really who Billy Crystal was when I was like you know seven or whatever um maybe maybe I knew who he was but I didn't really know that much about his act or anything like that and the Mel Smith character when he comes in and he he talks like this and then he coughs and he talks normally (laughs) it's like so genius and I think 
even though they're clearly comedians that were brought in and obviously we're, we're friends with the director as well and that's why he brought them in they add this like nod and a wink to the audience and they give you that little bit of, of entertainment and then as you get older and realizing that Christopher Guest plays this like baddie with the six fingers what is it count uh, count Count Rogan. Count Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 amazing, I think, as well. He's so good as a baddie and you know, coming off spinal tap. I wish his torture device went up to eleven. That would have been the perfect But somebody point out like that's 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 a nice recurring joke, is that like the Christopher Guest in these two movies, like early in Rayner's career, plays characters who have like a superfluous like manner, unit of measurement. So it is like instead of going to ten, it goes to eleven, and he has eleven fingers <laughs> instead of ten. His fingers go to eleven. Um, which is quite like it's a nice small kind of inside joke I, but I, again gonna, I, you, you, were, you were asking about kind of like favorites um i think uh patinkin is the is the yes. mvp mm. um i i love all of the kind of the the um kind of uh, comedy performances and i think patinkin is also very funny but also very kind of there, there's there's a lot of pathos um in him and i and i think the the the, the great uh, love story of this movie is is with the kind of the 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 bunch of them. So so like with 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 Fezzik, the trio. um, Inigo Montoya, and uh, Wesley, I feel like that it's it's more. It 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 does feel like more of a buddy kind of trio. Yeah, I I believe more in the love between the three of them than I do between Wesley and Buttercup. Yeah, because is... they're trying to save his life, you know. Yeah. The, the, um, and the, um, and it feels like there's a jet like like I understand like I don't understand why Wesley and Buttercup kind of fall in love because she's just generally awful to him and then he kind of resents her for being forced to get married to the prince. I like there's it feels like there's a missing gap yes. there. And I know that the movie's only ninety eight minutes long and like it's meant to be like hyper edited. Yeah. The moment where he reveals who he is by like when she throws him down the cliff going, As you wish and it's like I get it, it's a nice moment, it's a very efficient piece of storytelling, but it feels like you sacrifice an actual emotional beat for a very clever joke. Whereas when you have like Montoya and Wesley bonding over sword fighting, which is yeah. like it's a wonderful joke. I am I'm not left handed either. Um but so it, like good. that bonding between the two of them feels like a more common grounding for a relationship and mutual appreciation and genuine love and affection than I think the Wesley Buttercup stuff does where it's like I understand why Montoya respects Wesley because he's such a good swordsman and conversationalist and he's a pleasant person to be around and banter with. I understand why Wesley, a man who is like dedicating himself to reuniting with Buttercup, immediately connects with Montoya, who is desperately searching to connect or to find the man who murdered his father. I understand why the connection is between those two. Whereas I, I don't get like that that that's that's a connection that I feel like actually means something, if that makes sense, which I, I kind of I think is kind of carries the movie. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. And I think that I, I do think that like the film is about this, you know, one of the things the film is about, as we said, this this love story between Wesley and Buttercup and that it falls into that trap of like, it's true love. So we don't have to tell you anything about how they got together. They can just exchange a few words. And because they knew they were meant together, meant to be together, eventually they realized, you know, he was in love with her and then she realized she was in love with him. And then that's fine. We don't have to give you any character development. And it works in terms of like speeding the film along, but yeah, it doesn't give you that that depth of 
of the relationship. And, you know, when you were asking about the characters that I loved earlier, all the people I named were kind of people I really liked because they are were unexpected maybe in the film. But my favourite character of all, despite the kind of, uh, if, if it, away from, you know, are these characters unusual, is, is Mandy Patinkin's character because he has that deep, connection with people and he's so real and that really adds to that that relationship he has with Wesley and that scene where he's drunk they find him drunk in the village and Andre the giant comes in and you just think oh they had such a lovely little connection in, in their scenes together um and there was lovely <laughs> stories about about uh, even though they hated each other probably possibly in real life and maybe not no, well, no no they didn't no, like no, each apparently, other like, but apparently- Appar- no, apparently, like Andrew the Giant respected oh. after the slap, he was like, "No, no, I've, I've, I've like, I've, I've got into the rhythm. I've of gone this. too it's far." Like, so, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was, it was more like, "Okay, I need to get out of my head." Is what yeah. he's telling me. Um, he could have just said that to me, but I, I got the communication. Right. Well, as a wrestler as well, he's used to people like you know <laughs> punch him in the face probably. But I, there was actually sweet stories about Andrew the Giant when he was um on on the film and trying to learn his lines. Um, that Reiner had to basically record all of his lines for him and then he would listen back to them and repeat them. And like he went through a lot being on set. So like I think he deserves a lot of our love as well because he had really bad back problems and they'd like prop him up for all these scenes. So there was a lot going on behind kind of closed doors or behind when the cameras were rolling that adds to the, that character that he played to the gentle giant. And like Robin Wright has talked about how he was like the per- like he was just a big he was the heart the beating heart of the movie like and again it's one of those things that's kind of like really funny to, like really funny it's really sweet to imagine but like incongruous in a way that's appropriate with the movie where she talked about like that's those scenes where like she throws herself overboard and she's in the water tank and she would be freezing coming out of it where he would just like put his hands on either side of her head and they would warm her up because his hands were so large. It was like having two kind of hot water ba- bottles there. Oh. Or like when they were shooting, he'd take his coat off because his coat was so large. It would be almost like a dressing gown to her and he'd let her kind of wear it. it. Like all these stories, which are just like really, really, really lovely. And like, I do really hope that like Wallace Shawn, you know, when he was working with Mandy Patinkin, when he's working with Andrew the, Gi- Andrew the Giant, like got to like, you know, have meals with them to celebrate with them. Because I really hope he had, you could talk about his dinner with Andre the Giant. I love that Andre <laughs> Andrew saw where I was going with that. I appreciate it. Um, but like Wallace Shawn, like Wallace Shawn as Vicini, uh, for example, is very good. Like that role was intended for, um, that role was intended for I, I Danny was, DeVito. I, sorry, I was turning to, to to get a glass of wine for my wife. And, and I, 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 I did think that like there would be a dinner with Andre <laughs> reference. Fantastic. Um, You're like but, so in sync, like the two of you. You're like, yeah, it's very princess. We, we are like Wesley and Wesley it. and Anya yeah. Montoya. Yeah, it's, it's like, like the, um... the fencing of cinema references. <laughs> I really appreciate it a lot. Yeah. I am also not left-handed. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like like that role of Vincenzi was meant to be played by Danny DeVito, uh, which is kind of in- which is kind of interesting to imagine because so again, different. very 80s. Yeah, and I think it kind of it kind of works. Like Sean is is fantastic. Like again, everybody in this movie is fantastic in large part because they are so unexpected as you said it's like it, you're not expecting Vincenzi to talk like a fixture of the New York yeah. theater scene <laughs> ever, what is he ever heard of Plato Socrates morons like you know morons. It's just like, <laughs> only he could deliver those lines in a way where you still felt like there was you know you knew he was a bit dim or whatever but really convinced of his own ability but still he would be able to push it to the point where he would happily kill somebody or do whatever it took. You know, he's so mean to Andre the Giant's character. He's like awful to him. So he manages to like skirt that kind of line of like evil, but also stupid, but entertaining. So you just can't help but like 
love him and his death scene that yeah. like dying halfway through the laugh is unbelievable <laughs> it's just <laughs> comic gold yeah, like I love how unpleasant Vizeni is. Like even when he's doing like small things, where he's like, "We haven't got all day. We've got to get moving. I should just hire another giant. I want you to know your job's on the line." I love it. <laughs> the job I of being w- a giant, helping a criminal start a war in another country. Like it's <laughs> yeah. What? I like big. A- I want to speak to the manager energy from Gen Z here, which I kind it's of a admire. Terrible uh, man, by the way. Uh, from Humperdinck, is it the, yeah, the kidnapping yeah, of the... Yeah, exactly. Like, so many people know what he's doing as well. <laughs> like, why not just kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's it's just tell everybody <laughs> like that, that that's what happened. I mean, I also feel like he's the king. He can just invade. Like, yeah. he doesn't really need an excuse. I feel like, you know, he doesn't necessarily need a false flag operation to launch a war. He yeah. can just decree... That there needs to be a war, the perhaps. The whole plan yeah. is needlessly complicated. And he gets, like, <laughs> really incompetent people and then medieval Karen to lead the, the whole thing. And it's like... But I do I do think that his role and, and the way Chris Arndon, like, says his lines are so funny because they're quite modern, the stuff that he says. Like, it's kind of anachronistic. But he's so good. He's so deadpan. You know, it's like that scene where himself and Christopher Guest are outside the tree which goes down to the pit of despair. And they're talking about, like, he wants him to come down with him. And he's saying, oh, you know, I've got this, this, I've got to murder my wife. You know, I've got to invade another country. I'm kind of busy. Like, I'm swamped right now. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a wedding to plan. I've got a wedding to plan, a wife to, to kill. You know, so good. Like, he's way, like, I think I appreciated him a lot more in this watch than maybe when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I think, like, Sarandon is, I think Sarandon is genuinely very, very good here in the sense that, like, he he's not, he doesn't necessarily steal any of the scenes that he's in, which is probably a mark of, like, a good ensemble player. But he even little things where like he says the line and he hops on the horse it's like if they've killed her already i'll be very very disappointed and then hops on a horse and it's so delightful um and again like it's, it's a kind of like playing of it kind of deadpan that kind of works as well it's odd that we haven't talked more about carrie elways yeah. actually like we've been working our way through the cast what do we think of carrie elways here i did kind of carrie carrie elways is one of those people who's um kind of that uh, a, a, a great I guess kind of Hollywood raconteur but is he is he is he that um great him himself like I like him I like I, 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 I like him a lot um but I, I, I like I in fact I think one of the nicest thing things kind of refreshing things about Carrie Elways is that it feels like he's somebody who who um who feels quite lucky to be in movies, you know, mm. and and that that it it you 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 get some kind of like vicarious kind of um, enjoyment, kind of. Well, you're him. rooting for him as much as kind of with him, you know. Yeah, like, if it, go. I'm really glad that you're enjoying that you're there. Br- that you're <laughs> Bruce Campbell, although like very different, but of 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 people who kind of um, sort of you know found themselves in. Hollywood and in movies and, you know, um, live to tell the tale, I suppose. Or is that completely... Uh, uh, I think he is perfect for Wesley because he looks the part and he looks like all of those kind of old school Hollywood um, characters um, who, yeah, he's got that, he's got that 
like innocence about him you know he's got that beautiful blonde hair he's like Errol Flynn in a way the way he's kind of lithe and kind of slim um but I I find it very funny that like I was reading more about him and I realized I hadn't hadn't realized or known how much kind of study he had done in terms of like where he had studied acting and like how his career had gone and even though he was really young that got this role he had like done a lot of work like he didn't just kind of stumble into this role which I hadn't realized at all because I, I had felt like I barely seen him in anything else on screen like he was in uh, Men in Tights uh, wasn't he Robin, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Brooks, yeah like right. a, f- a few years later I think um so he's someone who's maybe never reached the heights of this film, but maybe that's just my perception because I haven't been following his career super closely, even though I've always had a, a grow for him. Until Men, at th- Men in Tights, of course. Until, exactly. <laughs> well, he's perfect for that, though, I suppose. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the but Errol that, Flynn thing. But that that's exactly, I think Aoife kind of like just hit the nail on the head there with, with Carrie Elways. Like the thing for me with Carrie Elways is that like he... And again, like this is the thing with that with that Andrew kind of mentioned, where you're like you're kind of almost rooting for him, even if you're not sure that he's like not a good actor. That sounds rather mean. Um, but it's like he does feel like an actor who was like almost born like seventy years too late. Yeah. Right. Where like if he if he were doing like you know kind of like silent films or early talkies, he'd be perfect because he has he has the wonderful kind of chin. He's a very handsome man. He has this very arch kind of screen presence. And like I think you could argue that like it's notable that where Elway's really pops. Like if you look at like Elway's filmography, which is very long, it involves a lot of stuff. We've He's done a lot him. of really really what. We've we covered we have, him. yeah. Yeah, we we had what's it called the the um, bloody uh, Christmas or uh, what's that movie called? Uh, the the most Black Christmas, the Black, Black Christmas, Christmas remake, yes, where, yeah. where he plays Jordan Peterson. Um, but yes, <laughs> yes, it's a reason why I haven't watched that film. <laughs> Um, but like if you look at like the films where he really pops they tend to be one of two things they tend to be either movies that are like literally about old Hollywood or kind of shot in old Hollywood ways so like Bram Stoker's Dracula which is shot like it's a 1930s film so it's like yeah Carrie Elway's in his natural element or movies like say Shadow of a Vampire which is a movie about like making Nosferatu in 1922 and you're like that is a man who looks like he belongs in cinema in 1922 or there are things that are like parodies, like like this, um, like Hot Shots, um, like you mentioned, like Robin Hood Men in Tights, where there's a level of kind of heightened reality where it's like he's not playing a human being. He's kind of like he's playing the idea of an actor in a movie that you saw 70 years ago, yeah, where so it's good. like he's like playing Val Kilmer or he's playing Earl Flynn in Men in Tights or he's playing, again, Earl Flynn here with the fencing and stuff like that, where like it does feel like Carrie Elway's was almost kind of like he arrived too late. Cinema doesn't have a place for him, unfortunately. Um, but I kind of, I do. I think he does a lot of really good work. I really liked him in Saw, for example. Um, have you seen the last Saw? Is it Saw 3D? Where the big reveal at the end, because we're in the spoiler zone, is that Carrie Elway's did all of it. It's kind of, it's one of the most amazing, mind-blowing nonsense twists I have ever seen in a movie. Where it reveals that Carrie Elway's not only did not die at the end of the first Saw, which you saw him do at the end of the first Saw. But he has been silently manipulating all of the Saw movies between his last appearance in the first Saw movie and his 
10 minute appearance at the end of the last Saw movie, Saw 3D. It's amazing. It's like, it's, it's one of those montages. Like they do the montage at the end of the Saw movie where it's like they show you footage from earlier movies, except this time it has Carrie Elways in it. So they'll replay footage and a masked man will turn towards the camera and it'll be Carrie Elways. Again, like he's a 1930s serial villain. It's like, there's the camera. I found the angle. Um, it's it's something to behold. There's a point where like it reveals itself and the music stops and the movie just kind of stops and it's like you need to buy this for the rest of the movie to work. This is a big ask. So we're going to stop the music. We're going to have freeze frame on Carrie Elways. You're with us. Okay, we're going to play the music again and replay the montage. It's it's kind of something to behold. But yeah, I do I do feel like Elways kind of like this is this is is this peak Elways? Has he ever been better than here, do we think? He'll always just be remembered like he'll always be remembered for this in a way that like he won't be maybe remembered for the bulk of the rest of his you know films I think just because this this is probably his most iconic role although it sounds like maybe the role in Saw I haven't seen any Saw films but sounds like that role might be fairly iconic within a certain (laughs) type of fan I don't know I'll never watch Saw so I'll never know but (laughs) any of them Sorry. What Darren said kind of reminded me a bit of Leslie Nielsen, where he was like, like you know, yeah. the, where he was kind of, kind of like perfect for kind of B movies, but then had had this like career as, um, kind of playing um, kind of arch parodies. Uh, yeah, yeah, sort sort of straight, but 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 very arch. Yeah, yeah, which I think is kind of what this is like. And again, like it feels kind of like Carrie always suffers because like he's further which, from that. Like, which isn't an insult, by the way. Yeah. I, I, no, I think both no. both of those actors are as good as they are because of their sense of humor. Um, yeah. Yes, and totally. I, like if Carrie always did not have that that sense of humor, that little kind of wink to the camera, almost that you know you're with me, th- then he would be quite a bland actor but actually because he has that it gives it gives it's real it's like a nice appeal to him and it gives him a little frisson of of excitement that maybe he might not have otherwise yeah and i mean like he we talked about him like we talked about like it's notable that we introduced him as the least problematic of the 80s movies crushes which probably has to stand to him as well and he does seem like he is very cool with being associated with this stuff like he's not at all ashamed of the idea that maybe his fourth or his fifth movie is going to be the one that will be on his tombstone he's like he's very proud and very happy to be part of that he seems genuinely moved and like he's he's talked about how like even things like stranger things where he plays the mayor for example like is just something that he got off the back of the princess bride because he's an 80s icon and he's not embarrassed or ashamed of that and he shouldn't be uh, which is kind of i kind of like like that there's no real sense of pretension uh, to carry always which i kind of like and it's kind of rare but is is there anything else you want to talk about with the movie anything we haven't discussed already anything jumping out at you anything because you did mention you had lots of thoughts and lots of notes i am going to open my notes here and see if there's something that i <laughs> that i missed maybe i'll google keep uh, app um yeah, I mean, let me think there now. I, I did think that one thing I love about it that it does appeal to all generations, you know, so it is one of those maybe, not every film is one that you could put on and like grandparents, parents, kids are going to love it. So I think that that helps with its like generational appeal. So that was something that really struck me that like it has a little message for the kids where like, yeah, there's kissing, but like there's other stuff stick with it. So for the parents about like parenting and love and stuff for the grandparents about like looking at family and things. So I really like that element to it. I think that family friendly thing is not to be sniffed at I think that that's pretty lovely um and I just really liked how it's a film within a film 
and that could be jarring um or the fantasy elements and stuff could be jarring depending on who's watching it but it all works so well because they've put this thought into how they speak to the audience and how they like begin a film with a shot of like a computer game which like grounds it totally in the present at the time grounds it in the past for us now and yet are able to go into a fairy tale world pretty seamlessly because of how well they treat the narrative and I just think that's really clever I think there's a lot to be learned from that I think by creators and you, you mentioned the kind of the opening shot. We should mention that like it was like, despite the fact this wasn't a big blockbuster or a huge cinematic phenomenon, like big rips off the same opening shot mm. uh, at the start of like, like the following year. So like people in Hollywood were paying attention to The Princess Bride when it came out, even if it didn't make all of the money in the world, uh, which again is kind of like an interesting kind of phenomenon. And again, a movie discovered it on VHS as well. And a movie that was uh, again, like, Kerry Elways and Reiner have both said like the peak of the movie's popularity was in like 96, 97, which is around the time the IMDb was formed or like, you know, it became an actual website, which is why it's arguably one of the fixtures of the list. Like it's a 97 percenter. Uh, it's been on the list since the beginning and only dropped out in the gap between me saying, Aoife, what would you like to talk about? And us actually getting you on to talk <laughs> about the movie guess. that you wanted to talk about, which is kind of incredible. Um, so but yeah, no, it's. It's 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 again it's it's a long lasting kind of movie. But is is there anything else there in terms of kind of discussing? I that we haven't. I, I I love the kind of naming of things in 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 this movie, like like the shrieking eels and the cliffs yeah. of insanity. It's so literal, the like rodents of unusual <laughs> size, the fire swamp, the lightning sand. Like you, you just kind of like these are all things that everybody is aware of, you know. Yeah, um, and well, it's very similar to that Star Wars thing that we talked about. Where like Star Wars, like one of the big things that about selling fantasy to American audiences. And sorry, this sound, we sound like we're being very condescending to American audiences, and I apologize for that. But it's like very literal naming conventions, where it's like, what is it? It's a lightsaber. It's a sword made of light. <laughs> what is what is this power that you use to like push things or? force things oh it's the force that's what it's called like there's a lot of that here mm. as you said like the, and i do love by the way to like tie to um the to tie to the metafictional aspects of it apparently like goldman said that he ripped off the cliffs of insanity sequence from morgenstern when he was making uh butch Cassidy and the sundance kid even though obviously he, he, he wouldn't yeah. write it until afterwards, which is kind of, I love that like l winking self-awareness, mm. perpetual circle, self-referencing irony kind of stuff. Um, I'll give a shout out too as well to, um, we kind of touched on it, I think at the start, did we about the, the special effects or lack thereof <laughs> and just the fact <laughs> that like parts of it are clearly filmed on a set with like painted backdrop and on like mattresses because they're doing, you know, stunts or whatever. And I mean, you know, um, the like Inigo Montoya and Wesley, the characters who play them or the actors who play them put loads of work into learning all the fencing. So it's not like they didn't skimp on any of that sort of stuff. They spent months, like eight hours a day learning how to fence properly with like the guy who fenced as Darth Vader in, in Star Wars during some of the lightsaber scenes, I believe. Um, So they had put a huge amount of work into it. But then when they did it, it was on this like really bizarre set where all the rocks were all painted grey and, and purple or whatever. <laughs> um, And then that's contrasted with these beautiful bucolic scenes of them in like glorious English countryside. Um, And I also have to give a massive shout out to when they do the scene where they're going climbing up the cliff or under the giant is holding 
three of the characters on his body going up the cliff and like the wide shots are of some random stunt person going up a cliff who's just clearly got like three dolls or whatever <laughs> stuck to him. <laughs> I love that so much. Like someone just with a wig and a big jumper looking like Andre the Giant, but isn't actually him. So yeah. That, that's it. Like that's the thing where like I, I love that stuff. And like I, as much as we joked about like the cheap special effects or kind of like the, the obvious kind of fakery with the map paintings and the studio set and stuff. Yeah. Like I do actually love the tactility yeah. of it. Like I know, I know those rocks are like styrofoam. I know they're not heavy. I know they're not going to hurt anybody when they fall on them. And I know that they're designs that they can just put them back when they need to do another take. But they still like have mass and substance and feel like they're really there. And you're able to watch because the set is designed the way it is. You're able to have like relatively long takes of the characters fighting up and down yeah. stairs and stuff and you're not constantly like cross-cutting like you do today you're not using like cgi you didn't just shoot them against a green screen so you could composite in whatever later there is a sense that like the fight sequence that as you said that they learned mm. the fencing that they learned was like very particularly designed around this set around like the steps are going to be here you're going to end up there like which is is like it gives it a tactility that i miss in a lot of modern films yeah. and again I, I don't like to, as you said, nobody likes to be the person who's like, they don't make them like this anymore. But, but there like, is, there is that sense. Yeah. But it, sorry. No, there, there is a lot of affection for kind of old ways of making movies. Like, like uh, with yeah. um, kind of stop motion and old gore. I saw the other day, there's a film festival in Brisbane, Australia which is only rotoscoped lightning films. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, like, uh, it's like Big Trouble in Little China and like any... Oh, um, oh, that's how you get the criteria. That's the criteria for entry. You have to have a rotoscoped lightning sequence. Exactly. There's, 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 I, I, I couldn't, Sorry, there's, I was just thinking, I just think from you described it, it was just like shots of rotoscope. Soon, of course, with the, with the, with the, um, the uh, what, what do you call that stuff that comes off of the worms? Um... Um, you have worm sign, is it? No, it's not worm sign. Worm sign. I think it is worm sign. Yeah, you have like the, the last dragon, forbidden planet. See, this is why I think you should cut one of the Star Wars movies. But anyway, Adam Adam's family double features. Uh, Howard oh, the Ducks, the best. Yeah, Howard the Ducks, yeah. Super Mario Brothers. Um, yeah, they're, they're, um, it's not. But a like that, that sense of tactility, which is largely missing from kind of modern films, which I, I do love. And again, you know, again, this is like rotoscope lightning. Yeah. And again, this is like 1987, and there's a sense of. Like, again, this is the sense of, like, the the irony there where it's, like, how do you sell modern kids on the idea of, like, backdrops that are obviously plastic or matte painting backgrounds at a time when, like, technology is kind of advancing and, like, you have, you know, we're only a couple of years away from, like, Total Recall or we're only a couple of years away from T2 Judgment Day and the idea of, like, the revolution that you're going to have in special effects where things start becoming digital and kind of, like, you know, verisimilitude, verisimilitude is going to be the order of the day, whereas Princess Bride, because it has that level of irony and a story within a story and the kid constantly like mocking and kind of like interrupting it can kind of get away with that in 1987 which i i do admire in in a very real way where it's like because i i do love the fact that it looks like a 1930s version of robin hood when they're doing the fencing scene and the movie isn't trying to convince me that it's it's anything more modern you know yeah, the, that it's like top gun with real fighter jets sorry yeah sorry. no you're right no you're sorry you're, you're totally right and that it actually endears the audience 
to what's going on like you're like kind of rooting for them you're like yeah well done guys you found a way to make that stunt look really good or you know when Carrie Elwes is doing the um the fencing fight with Manny Patinkin and you you see that moment where it switches over to a stunt person when he's going over <laughs> who does the, the loop, loop, loop and he lands and you're like <laughs> you're like I know it's a stunt person but you did the rest of it like I'm so proud of you um so I love that that handmade element to it as much as it's like a Hollywood film that costs what did you say 16 million dollars to make yeah. so you know yeah. All right, all right. I think that then about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about, anything we haven't discussed already, is there any inappropriate smoking here, Andrew? Hey, I'm, 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 I'm not aware of any. I can't think of which is uh, very rare for the 1980s. I mean, like I'm fairly sure Peter Falk probably smoked something before he came onto the set. He does like Grandpa does look like he puffed a cigarette on the way over there, but he did extinguish it before he came into the room. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked about Peter Falk. He's very good. Uh, he's great. He's um, brilliant and he's perfect yeah. and he's he's aged up and it's kind of weird to see him aged up yeah. in it because he's always like bumbling around just one more thing. And yet and at the end he forgets stuff and he's doing a bit of a Columbo thing on the way out. But yeah. it is weird to see him aged up like but he's great. He's perfect because he's, he's kind of a bit like you know, ah, come on, kid. Like, you know, whenever Fred Savage is being annoying, which I really like. I mean, there's, there's that moment where he says, you're very smart. Yeah. To, like, yeah, and again, like, it's one of those, gr- <laughs> you're very, yeah, smart. very smart. Um, But like, that's, that's one of my favorite moments in the film because it feels like it's, it's like, the thought that runs through my head whenever anybody does like those kind of screen round everything wrong with or movie <laughs> sins or whatever, where it's like, oh, but how did Batman get back to Gotham in the, the amount of time he had? Or, oh, look, the character uh, wasn't wearing a helmet in the previous scene, but he is now. And it's like, you're very smart. You outwitted the movie. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> um, well done, you. Let's get on with the story. That's the voice. I always hear the Peter Falk. You're very smart. Now shut up um, <laughs> in my head. Um but is there any food waste, Andrew? Oh, there's serious problem. Like because they do have the fight at the feast, don't they? Where the like the wedding feast gonna be? Isn't that where he confronts yes. Rujin and stuff like that? There, so there I, has to I be. I believe yeah. there is a spread that gets knocked over. It's it is interesting that we are on our way out, and then we're like one more thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Columbo style. That's what my <laughs> <laughs> Peter Falk what, discussion. Yeah, he deserves it. He deserves it. He does. Peter Falk was our one more thing. I really like that. Um, I also love, by the way, the small gag where Fezzo's kind of like bringing Montoya back to reality and he has the cold water and the hot water um, <laughs> just to wake him up. <laughs> like so many small, perfect jokes in this movie, which I love. Um, but all right. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. So something that they're enjoying at the moment. It'd be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that is bringing you a bit of joy in these very troubled times. So to give Aoife a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I think I I think I said that I was watching True Detective. I saw um season two. I thought it ended very badly, but I think overall it's <laughs> I love that you, I love that you were like last I love that last week you're like season two gets a bad rap. Mm. Um and now you're like dodgy it's, season. It's, it's not a dodgy season though, that's the thing. It's really not that it, it's Aww. like in comparison to season one. It like it's not going to reach that that same mm. height, but it, mm. it, I think most of the problem is that it just kind of like ends um, poorly. It's it's really not the, so bad. The great thing about like our our because our recording and release schedules are so close is that we get this real time coverage from Andrew, where it's like last week it was like so I'm watching season two of True Detective, and this week it's like so I watched season two. <laughs> of True Detective. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, like a lot of my recommendations, I'm not really true with. Like, like, like you know, there's there's books that I'm kind of halfway through. <laughs> you did get married recently. Like, you had other stuff happening. The, to be fair. I'm 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 watching the um, the Matrix movies. And um, oh. I, I did not watch The Matrix because I feel like I've seen that <laughs> plenty of times. But I, 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 I felt like I ought to watch Reloaded and kind of, you know, give it, give it, give it. An, and, and now I'm watching uh, Revolutions. And the, right. uh, I like the way that you say that as if like it's taking you a while to get through Revolutions. It's like, well, I'll I, do another I, half hour tonight I, and I, I tomorrow. Did, I'll I, did. I, I watched like maybe half an hour of it last night, like the start of it and then stopped and went to bed. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I am having in bits. I'd, uh, seriously, though, I'd, I'd recommend Robin, Robin Hood Men and Tights. I think it's it, it's it's a delightful, silly uh, movie. I think Carrie Always is fantastic in it. I should probably watch it again to see if it stands <laughs> up. But um, but um, I no, I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, uh, as 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 a child, so maybe check check that out. Right. And Aoife, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? So I'm sure one of your other guests probably brought this up. I don't know. Maybe Jen Gannon might have mentioned it, but I was totally obsessed with the podcast Dead Eyes um, that I re- that I think that I mentioned earlier. It's so good if people have listened to it. So it's about a comedian called Connor Ratliff who was uh, chosen to be in Band of Brothers in the episode that Tom Hanks directs. And he does his audition and he's told you got you got the part of Private Zelinsky, this kind of small enough part, but he, I think he might have had like a line or two lines or something. Um, and then he gets a call from his agent who says, you need to go back because Tom Hanks wants to meet you again. He's not quite sure if you're right for Private Zelinsky. He goes back, does a, a, an audition with Tom Hanks, and then on his way back home in the car from this like country estate or whatever where Hanks is staying, um, gets a phone call from his agent saying, you're actually not going to get this role. Tom Hanks says you have dead eyes. <laughs> so he ends up... <laughs> the nicest up, man in Hollywood, ladies nice and gentlemen. Hollywood just said you dead eyes, right? So obviously Conor Ratliff's like, oh my God, I'm like the worst actor in the history of the world. And he, he's only in his 20s, just starting off in his career, really. He leaves acting altogether and then comes back to it about 20 years later. And then a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, he started recording a podcast called Dead Eyes, trying to look into ostensibly why did Tom Hanks say he had dead eyes or did he even say he had dead eyes and what does that mean? And it ends up being three series of the most amazing podcast that's just about like film and acting, but like creativity and like persistence, picking yourself up and dusting yourself off when things go wrong. And I just, I loved it so much. And he interviews a lot of really, really well-known people who have really lovely stories. He's on a quest to try and talk to Tom Hanks. I won't tell you whether or not he actually does or not, but that's not even what you're even thinking about while you're watching it. Um, I would recommend it to all. It's so good. called Dead Eyes and all the seasons are on wherever you find your podcasts. Yeah, that's my thing. And I also went on a Scream binge that I watched all the Scream films before the new one came out. I think a few months ago, I'd really recommend that because like they're actually still so entertaining to watch back. Um, and you will scream. They are classic the movies. Cuts. Like they, they are classic movies. I yeah. mean, they're they're very old movies. Very, very so old. ancient, like nineties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 2000s. they're practically black and white. They just invented sound. Uh, was the thing they hadn't really worked out how to move the camera because the camera was so loud. Just static, um, just static yeah. shots for the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I would recommend that if you want to escape to escape from reality, because the other stuff I've been watching has been really depressing Danish stuff like Oslo, thirty first of August. No, no, sorry, Norwegian. 
Oslo 31st of August by the guy oh, who's the that... worst person yeah. in the world. Um, very depressing, but really, really yeah. good. Is that the one about the shooting? The draw. It's the no. I actually had thought that originally too. It's actually okay. about the a guy who is a drug addict. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. So it's and he gets on. He's kind of on a day out to go for a job interview. So if you liked okay. worst person in the world, which I adored, I don't know. Did you did you like did you like that? Darren made the, the, the record show. Darren made a Darren made a so so. That's audio media. Yeah, this is an audio. I, I going going back to Connor Radcliffe. He 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 does the the George Lucas talk show with with Griffin Newman, who we're 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 also fans of. Who appears on the podcast as well. So I think he has his. I wasn't really that aware of him until this. So I think it sounds like you're you're very aware of his other career. So I think he'd really really enjoy. It what he does if you haven't listened to it already perfect um in terms of, of recommendations uh for myself uh this is coming out literally the weekend that we are recording this so i guess i will recommend uh the black phone which is in cinemas which i quite enjoyed it's a nice old-fashioned kind of again we kind of mentioned the idea of this being kind of like an old-fashioned 80s movie that's very much the black phone is kind of like very much harking back to movies that kids watched in the 80s and 70s that were grossly inappropriate for kids to watch uh where a kid gets kidnapped by a serial killer called the grabber played by ethan hulk and has to use a phone that can communicate with the dead in order to figure out how to escape from the child murderer who is holding him hostage and if that premise doesn't have you hooked i i don't know i don't know what what to tell you um aside that there's a bunch of good stuff happening on television uh barry wrapped up its third season uh, andrew mentioned it i think andrew was unhappy with or kind of like maybe not satisfied with the way in which the show was tilting from like black comedy into like the grimmest thing you have ever seen um i was yeah <laughs> I was very much on board with that. I quite enjoyed the end of the grimmest thing over? I ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, is it there is over? a question is after that season. episode eight the last episode of the season. It is yes. Okay. No, not of the show. They've they've greenlit they greenlit a fourth season. I have no idea what the fourth season's going to be, uh, given how that episode ends. But yes, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, is is, is that what is, is that there... it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What what happens now? Is there is there like a final episode like 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 they do on Game of Thrones where like everything has kind of happened? <laughs> uh, just kind of like wrapping it up or or or, or what? Yeah. So yes. so that was the final episode of of the of season. the season. Yes. Right. Uh, and right. I, I I really I, loved it. I really I did <laughs> like it by the way. But but yeah, I I I I thought it was it was it was grim. It is really grim, Darren says, as he laughs and smiles at how grim it is. Um, like it, it's amazing how it, it is funny as well. No, it, it, I mean, it, and and I, I think Bill Bill Hader is um, a real talent. I, I think there were there were, there were um, I saw on. It's becoming obvious now. It's going to become obvious um, as we go on that I'm on Twitter, <laughs> but I, I, I'm just not like posting. This just can't find him. Yeah, you have to find like, Android or anything like yeah. that. Um, but um, there, uh, yeah, I, I, um, it was a good point because it, it was it was it was a clip of the kind of motorcycle scene. With the GTA like, stuff overlaid, it does look like a GTA scene. Uh, which no, is but kind it, of amazing. it was saying that uh, like like Bill Hader like. Uh, get this guy to make a movie. <laughs> oh no, Hayner's a fantastic director. Like, like even just like again, he he's a he writes and directs a lot of the show, and it's 
really good. It's really well made, uh, particularly when you consider like the budget limitations that he's working on, the fact that it was made during COVID, and the fact that this is like one of the first projects that he's managing like that. Um, it's himself and Alex Berger, showrunners. Sorry, this has turned into a very long uh, recommendation of just Bill Hader as a person. But yeah, let Bill Hader direct a movie. Uh, and Better Call Saul. I'm, I'm really enjoying Better Call Saul. It'll be back, I think, a couple week or two after this is, is on the air. Um, yep. Yeah, so if listeners are looking for a bit more Aoife in their lives, where can they find you? What, yeah, what are you up to? Uh, so they find some of the stuff I do on the journal, but I'm usually kind of behind the scenes a lot these days. Um, but I do some of my own writing on aoifabarry.com. Um, so I have I have a piece up there that I did about Dublin recently and about Dublin changing and it all being demolished before our very eyes. <laughs> um, and I do, being all hotels, I believe. Was the one and being the- all hotels, exactly. And I do some bits about like films and books and, and stuff that I like. Um, I'm on a bit of a hiatus from Get Around With, the podcast that I do with my friend Lauren. But you can go back and listen to old episodes with loads of recommendations because the whole point to Get Around To It is it doesn't matter when you listen. <laughs> you can just get around to it. Um, and I'm on... I'm on Twitter at SweetOblivion26. It's a long story as to why that's my username, but <laughs> that's me. Perfect. Um, you can find... an egg on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, find him. I love that. Well, this is our, like, the, the Princess Bride had the metafictional game of, like, write a letter to the publisher to get a letter back with, the, like, a preview. It's like they're the no... metafictional game of the 250 is find Andrew on Twitter. They're, they're no uh, longer eggs on Twitter. Whenever <laughs> you... Did you have to find an egg picture? Did you have to find an egg and put it as your picture as an ironic statement? I'll reveal what it is. It's, it's an egg. Oh, oh, it's, it's your initial. It's a grey background with with a white uh, letter A. That's, All right. Uh, okay. So listen. Defaults to yeah. listeners are currently scouring oh, crap. Twitter. As no, that, that probably makes it far too easy. <laughs> Change it quickly before this episode comes before out. this episode airs uh, this Saturday. Matter, we are going farm to plate on this, um, and also because we're going farm to plate on this, I don't know what we're covering next week. I think it's probably going to be Joan of Arc with the fantastic Phil Bagnell, the wonderful Max Tolan. But I cannot guarantee that. Don't worry. After next week, our schedule will become a lot more stable because we will be recording multiple episodes and therefore we'll be able to begin planning again. But thank you so much, Aoife. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, guys. It was a treat, as always. Sorry. What are you going to say, Andrew? No, we we might also record four episodes, release them all in one week. In a week, yes. And then not do any for ages. I don't know. (laughs) And I want to be clear whose idea that was. (laughs) Respect my view that people shouldn't be watching movies during the summer. (laughs) (laughs) Watch these four movies as a preparation for having this summer. (laughs) Four weeks off, baby. Um, All right. Thank you very much, Aoife. Thank you, you, Aoife. Thanks so much, guys. Talk soon. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 